Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is your host, Abby Martin. This is the audio of our show. You can watch the episodes on our YouTube channel or at theempirefiles.tv. Uh, it's been a couple weeks. I think the last time that we did this with, was with Jordan Cheriton from Status Coup talking about the South Carolina primary, how Joe Biden took that. It was the day before Super Tuesday. And little did we know how quickly things would change in the last two weeks. Uh, we took a little bit of time off and now we're back and the country, actually the entire world is in a full blown pandemic, uh, global crises. I guess the uniquely comforting thing is that we're all in this together. The entire world is suffering the same thing. Every single country is going through the same thing. Um, so we recently moved. This is why we have this kind of makeshift studio setup and not our cool greenlit backdrop right now. We're in the process of getting a new studio set up. So bear with us. Um, our cool gem shelf going on back there, but. <laughs> Abby's collecting rocks. I, I like rocks. Very cool. Everything's made out of They're rocks. They're very old. <laughs> Soon to come uh, on the Empire Files, of course, in a couple weeks is our uh, are our documentaries on the Afghanistan war and the U.S. empire in Africa. So stay tuned for those exposés. We've been working really hard to make those uh, really cool. So stay tuned for that. But we wanted to just give some updates on COVID, on the U.S. empire's response, on the state of the primary right now, and a couple other things that people have brought to our attention of what they want us to talk about. So... I mean, to start off, I just hope that everyone's doing okay. It's been a really terrifying and really uncertain and unsettling time in the U.S. I think the U.S. is in a unique situation. We don't have a lot of guaranteed rights like other countries do. Uh, the right to health care, uh, the right to paid sick leave. Uh, we don't really treat these things as we should, as other countries do, kind of as a given. So. I already know several of my friends who have been laid off who are without health insurance right now. And we all know that the U.S. empire has invested all of its resources and finances in building up this ridiculous military industrial complex. And you can't fight a virus or a pandemic with the military, with bombs. And so we're inept. Uh, we're in not a good place. And the Trump administration has done a disastrous job so far in dealing with this. And we're left to pick up the pieces to make sure that we don't follow the same line as, as where Italy is at right now. So um, global solidarity is needed. Solidarity with your brothers and sisters here, your neighbors, your friends, your community, uh, and just aid efforts on the ground, grassroots mobilizations with your community. Um, and staying in touch with your family, your friends, staying mentally sane, staying okay, right? Um, and just keeping your mental health during this really unpredictable time. And we also need to take this seriously. I, I think a lot of people weren't taking it seriously at the beginning, including our government. <laughs> but uh, we all do need to take responsibility. This is a collective effort for the greater good. Yeah, um, and I think we're gonna get into touch on everything that you mentioned, Abby, uh, in today's stream before getting into some election stuff, the response from the government. Um, so of course, we're gonna talk about what the US has been doing to respond both in a domestic and a foreign policy capacity, the real uh, limitations of the system, um, which we're seeing right now, if there is any time uh, that you should be radicalized against capitalism, against a capitalist uh, government, uh, then now is the time. Um, and we're going to talk, I think, at the end of the discussion about COVID, uh, ways that you can protect yourself 
uh, mentally throughout this, uh, you know, which is, I think there's a lot of creative and fun things we could be doing spending this time on quarantine. Um, but that's like in the sense that you're safe, right? You're safe in quarantine, you're not sick, um, and you're getting by. Uh, but I think that first, you know, I want to acknowledge that, of course, uh, everyone is scared right now, um, and justifiably so, and for different reasons. I mean, of course, everyone's scared financially how they're going to get by. Uh, you know, as Abby mentioned, like we know so many people who have already lost their jobs or significantly lost their hours and of course losing their health insurance uh, with that too. Um, so a lot of people are wondering how they're just going to pay the bills. Um, but I think the, the fear of uh, your physical health uh, is a serious one. Everyone who has asthma, any type of um, you know, immune disorder, anything, and people, you know, who are worried about their parents and grandparents, uh, you know, who are mostly over the age of 60, uh, contracting this and, and having uh, serious health repercussions. Those are all very legitimate fears. And uh, we have those fears too. We've been worried about all, all of those things for the past several weeks. Um, and I think that the comfort you can take is in knowing that everyone in the world right now, except for people who are not taking this seriously, which we're gonna talk about why, why you all need to be. Um, we're all feeling the same fears and the same anxieties. And so I think it's an amazing opportunity to be reaching out to everyone in your life, people you haven't talked to in a long time, people that you don't talk to enough, uh, people that you talk to regularly, um, and get that comfort in that shared experience. And you know, later on, we'll talk more about getting through stress and anxiety. And one of those things is finding comfort in the community of a shared experience. And so we're all going through it right now. Um, but it's also important for all, for all of us to, to prepare for this moment, prepare ourselves uh, mentally prepare ourselves and kind of the, the things we're going to be doing day to day to, to get ready to go through it and preparing to to help each other. Um, and so I don't know, should we get into some of the... Yeah, I just wanted to add that we have a discount code for Gaza Fights for Freedom for rentals. We know people are in a tough situation right now economically and everyone's quarantined inside. So what a perfect way. If you haven't seen the movie yet, go on our Twitter accounts or social media on Facebook and you can check out the discount codes uh, to watch our movie and get an insight on what it's like in Gaza. We just saw the first two cases of COVID-19 in Gaza, uh, sure to become an even greater disaster than it already is. So it's important to keep that in perspective as well. And just a shout out to grocery store workers, pharmacy workers, postal workers, and of course, all the healthcare professionals who are on the front lines. They are the true heroes. They need immediate free childcare, healthcare, emergency um, funds, and, you know, basically uh, regular tests and protective gear, they need it first before anyone else in the general population, including celebrities and politicians. I think that these people deserve uh, all the help that they can get and kudos to you if you're in any of these industries. It's incredible um, how quickly we've kind of acknowledged the importance of these industries and the need to protect them. Um, including uh, banks. Uh, several yeah. of our friends are tellers at banks and it's banks and grocery stores that are open right now. And many of some, both of them that, that we know have children, small children. Um, and so there's this, uh, you know, those people, those essential services, right? Banking and food supplies, pharmacies, um, you know, really, uh, we commend everyone who's uh, doing all the things they have to do going, going to work every day to make sure that society stays functioning to the degree that it needs to be so people can, you know, it's how people are able to to get by now and not relying on food deliveries mm -hmm. and food banks, which would be dangerous as well and, and things like that. Right. So let's get this out of the way. I mean, briefly talk about what the coronavirus is and how does it spread? 
Um, and I just read a breakdown about, you know, plastic stainless steel can survive two to three days on cardboard, 24 hours in aerosols, uh, three hours, which means just particulates in the air. So I don't know if you have anything to say just about the virus itself before we move on to everything else. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure uh, most people are read up on what the coronavirus is and, and how it's transmitted, how infectious and contagious it is. Uh, but I think it's it's not a bad idea to always hit on those facts. You know, if there's one person who gets this information that they didn't know, mm -hmm. and then they apply it to their own lives, like this kind of stuff saves lives. Uh, even if you are not at risk yourself, uh, asymptomatic carriers are spreading this thing. People who have no symptoms or don't develop symptoms for two weeks, this thing can hide out in your body for up to two weeks in many cases before you even... Uh, exhibit symptoms. So a lot of the people that we've been hearing, Idris Elba, Rand Paul, all these people, high level people or famous people who are contracting the disease, they're not getting it from sick people. They're getting it from people who are not sick at all. And so as an asymptomatic carrier, you could have it and you could be giving it to someone who does die because they're uh, older or they're at risk from asthma or something like that. So the amount at which you understand about this virus is, is quite important. Um, everyone's calling it the coronavirus. Like, coronas are a family of viruses. and there's many different viruses within the family of corona, but they're viruses that affect uh, your upper respiratory system. SARS was a coronavirus. Many may remember the SARS outbreak. Um, the total number, you know, and, and SARS, there is a, a panic of pandemic around SARS. SARS, the total number of infected cases was about 8,000 people worldwide. That was the last, that was the most successful coronavirus. Um, COVID-19, the latest uh, coronavirus, you know, is now uh, over 300,000 confirmed cases. And so this the scale of difference um, is quite large. The reason that it's been so successful is because it's incredibly infectious. Uh, a lot of people compare it to the flu. In fact, unfortunately, at the beginning of this pandemic, U.S. politicians are saying, oh, it's just another flu. Who, who cares? Um, it's we don't know all the numbers now uh, because there's a lot to be learned about. COVID-19. But the low estimate uh, is that it's, you know, over twice as infectious as the flu, right? So the flu has this R0, you know, the, the reproductive number of every person who has the flu, on average, you infect 1.2 people. Meaning if you have the flu, you will infect one person and maybe two people. In small cases, you'll infect two people. Um, the low estimate for COVID-19 is 2.28. So everyone who has it will infect two and a half people. Um, and the high estimate is like four. Um, so four people for everyone. So that's at least double, but possibly four times as contagious as the flu. And the mortality rate is uh, immeasurably higher. I mean, the fatality rate of the flu or seasonal influenza, which we get supposed to get the shot for every year, which kills tens of thousands of people a year, the mortality rate for the flu is 0.1%. And the low estimate of the mortality rate for COVID-19 is 1%. Um, and, it, and it could be higher, it could be 3% or something like that. And in particular, the flu, that 0.1% is predominantly very elderly people that the flu kills every year. Mm -hmm. The death rate for young people among COVID-19 is extraordinarily high. Um, in particular, if you have any type of respiratory problem, um, it's, it's killing people our age, younger than us. Um, and so it's very serious. The reason that it's so contagious, and I'll just say this, because this is what you need to know to be able to protect yourself, it's not airborne in the sense that the virus is floating around in the air and getting into air vents and infecting people in that way. Um, but it is airborne in the sense that it travels on your uh, droplets of moisture coming from your lungs because it's affecting your respiratory system. And so it hitches a ride on these very small uh, you know, bits of moisture that come out of your mouth 
not just when you cough or sneeze, but when you talk, when you breathe. Um, and you can expel, you know, it's like a six foot radius in which, you know, people, if they're in them, they will directly get these large uh, droplets that are infected with the virus that can inhale them. Or if it lands on any surface uh, within that, that, uh, that six foot radius, and it can actually linger in the air for an unknown amount of time within that six foot radius. So if you're breathing and walking down the street, you could be leaving a trail of these uh, particulates and droplets infected with the virus, which is someone could walk by and inhale and get it and picture other people having it and the trail that they leave when you're taking precautions yourself, wearing a mask, gloves, things like that. Um, but that range could actually be 15 feet that when you talk and breathe and cough, that it's actually 15 feet away that these particles can land. And those particles, when they land on a surface, in particular flat surfaces, doors, metals, as Abby mentioned, plastics, uh, it can survive for three days. And it only, and even if you clean it with like a baby wipe, it doesn't matter. It's gotta be alcohol or ammonia that is cleaned with uh, to kill the virus. Um, and so everything that you come in contact with at the store, doors, elevator buttons, all of that stuff, the virus can live, get on it very easily by just someone in the elevator who's infected with it and doesn't even know they have it, breathing. And the particles can get on everything, and then all you have to do is touch it, and then is, if you touch your face, then, then you get it. So that's why hand washing is extremely important. But every type of precaution you can take, wearing gloves and changing them out, wearing a mask, um, and most importantly, that that's why the, this need of social distancing, not getting together is so important. Because the reason that Italy reached the level that it reached so quickly, and we're fast approaching their numbers and growing at a faster rate than Italy did, is because they waited a long time to implement, you can't go outside and you can't see other people. So the more that you can, if you don't, can stay at home unless absolutely necessary, and then when you do have to leave the house, you take all of the possible precautions you can take to wearing a mask. Everyone should be wearing a mask because you don't know if you're spreading it and you can very easily inhale it. Not touching things. If you have to touch things, washing your hands, sanitizing, all of that. It's incredibly important for everyone to understand this information. Do everything you can to protect yourself and your community and others um, because we're... Uh, it's it's at that level of seriousness. Yeah, and it's unfortunate, you know, you see all these people like partying uh, for spring break in Florida and stuff and the Miami beaches and, you know, yeah, news, re that, news reporters Maybe, have went there and asked them, you know, your generation is kind of expected to uh, take up dealing with this and, and preventing this. And the kids kind of responded in a very blase fashion where they were just like, well, if it's our generation, let us let us just deal with it however we want to. And it's like, well, that that's not the point. The point is that your generation will probably spread it to people who are <laughs> susceptible to getting very, very sick, getting severe pneumonia, and possibly are the elderly who, who could die. I mean, I think this is a moment of great personal sacrifice for the collective. And it's something that a lot of Americans don't really understand. It's a new concept for people. This is a highly consumer-based society and people are kind of used to doing whatever they want whenever they want. And so it's it's a new era and it's a new age of understanding how to deal with this collectively, even though we're run by you know the Trump regime. Um, a lot of governors have taken it upon themselves to enact measures like shelter in place, which we're seeing in the Bay Area, Seattle, Chicago, New York City. I do think that this needs to be um, nationwide because I kind of think it defeats the purpose if people are still traveling between these cities and spreading it. Um, if we really want to curve, flatten that that curve. Um, so, yeah, and you know, there's you know, there's going to be a lot of things that are inconvenient that we have to deal with, um, and it, it could be frustrating. But we need to have that patience. And everything that's inconvenient that we have to deal with with this crisis is because we all have to act as a collective 
to protect each other and protect our families, people we don't know, um, protect our society and our communities. And so everything that seems frustrating, annoying, whatever, things being out of the, like, they're all things that we're collectively going through. And if we all kind of focus together, have the patience and the calmness to go through it, um, it's gonna save lives. And so I think if everyone looks at it out of sight of their personal kind of frustrations as something that we're all fighting together in a battle, um, although we're not physically together, uh, we're all fighting together in a war against this virus. And the more we can do things like that, preventing the spread, uh, you know, the easier we could get through it. Yeah, and, and it's it shouldn't be a cause to completely freak out and become debilitated emotionally and mentally. I mean, there are countries who have taken measures that have dramatically and drastically curbed the spread of the virus. Um, Italy is just obviously the worst case scenario. It's something that we don't want to turn into. We have utmost solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Italy where you know, nearly 700 people uh, died yesterday. This, this is horrific. The, the number is increasing exponentially of people who are dying. You have doctors there saying that they're just stopping treating people who are over the age of 60 years old. It is uh, hell. It is actually a war. Um, and it's really, really just traumatizing to understand what they're going through on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that there's other countries who have done other measures, who have a different um, you know, population statistical analysis of, of the demographics of their population that have shown drastically different results, like Germany, uh, other countries in Europe. You can look at South Korea and, of course, China, where Italy has now surpassed the death toll of China because China took pretty drastic measures early on and took it very seriously. I mean, they were implementing tests to everyone. You had the U.S., uh, in, in contrast, the U.S. has been testing the lowest out of any country in the entire world. <laughs> um, I think the World Health Organization offered the United States free tests and the U.S. declined to say that, saying that they wanted their own corporations to make the tests and then they just never did. So now we're just playing catch up. All of the numbers that you see um, are because we're way behind the curve, right? Um, but South Korea was testing as many people a day as the U.S. had total. Um, but I think that you can look at countries in Asia, in Europe, and see that they've dramatically curbed uh, the spread. And that's something that we hope to do as well if we can really act in the collective interest, like Mike was just saying. Yeah, you know, uh, China has you know no new cases for the past three days. One case a day, zero cases a day. Uh, the response from China, we can get into in, in a bit, but it was, um, you know, that's how a organized, centralized government could respond to something like this. I mean, you had China going out to the countryside and building like a massive hospital in like 24 hours with like 100 excavators and things like that. Um, but even countries that are capitalist, you know, horribly decaying, you know, va uh, you know vassals of the U.S. empire like South Korea, even they are are making extreme gains in terms of how they're curbing the spread of the virus. And it's because they're doing mass testing. South Korea is testing mm -hmm. every single person possible. So it's not without uh, outside of the purview of US capitalism to be able to do, or that the US government imposing on capitalism to be able to do the things that are necessary to, uh, to curb this crisis as other countries are. Um, they just don't wanna do it. Uh, and they would rather protect profits, serve the interests of Wall Street and so forth. Um, so I think we can look to some of those examples, but Abby, first, I mean, what? So one of the shocking things is uh, is that they've known about this for a while. 
right? I mean, this isn't like a surprise to the U.S. government that that this has happened. Right. Um, good point. And someone just did a super chat, a $5 donation where they just said the next time you're at the supermarket and you don't have bread, think about the countries under U.S. sanctions. Absolutely. And we're going to get into the sanctions on Iran, uh, the Nazi-like sanctions on Iran. I mean, think about what Venezuela is going through, Cuba, and Cuba's on the front lines of fighting this pandemic uh, globally. So really great point. It's something that we really need to keep into perspective all the time, that this is kind of... Uh, warfare that the U.S. is committing on other countries that we're experiencing for the first time here. So, of course, in early December, the first known case of, of coronavirus was found in Wuhan, China city, or allegedly, right? We don't actually know for sure, but this is alleged that uh, it was a giant city. I mean, it's a city of 11 million people. It's a giant transportation hub. Allegedly, the first cases came out of this um, seafood market. Fast forward to January 31st, and that's when the U.S. announced, of course, making it all about China, even though this had already spread all over the world at that point, that it would shut down entry from China for non-Americans. By March 1st, you had thousands of cases that were already reported. Italy, Iran, South Korea was already getting uh, totally out of control around the world. And at the same time, that's when China was implementing these dramatic quarantine measures that whole previous month, um, isolating people. You know, of course, the U.S. media was painting it as just absurdly authoritarian. How could they do this? And then, of course, blaming it all the xenophobia, which we'll talk about later, uh, of, of being a Chinese virus, a foreign virus. Even senators like Tom Cotton alleging that it was actually a bioweapon attack from China. But let's talk about what Trump did, because Trump waited until March 11 to suspend most travel from Europe. And that was all he did. Right. And it was just from foreigners, not um, U.S. residents. And he basically said in a press conference after just blaming China over and over and over again and, and also just saying that it was fake and a hoax, actually a Democratic hoax by the Democrats to try to get him impeached again. I mean, this is how batshit crazy Trump is. I mean, it's so akin to like what the cartoonish depiction of what you would say some sort of dictatorship in North Korea is where Kim Jong-un surrounds himself with yes men who just say like, you're insulting the president unfairly and this is unjust and why are you, why are you doing this? The president's doing a good job. It's exactly what happened here. Trump surrounded himself with yes men, literally saying that it was a hoax, that it was fake that this was a conspiracy on behalf of the Democrats to unseat Trump. Um, and it wasn't until months after coronavirus had already spread across the globe that you had Trump admitting, right, and declaring this to be a national disaster. You had his son, Don Jr., saying that this was a hoax. Um, Trump even said, finally, when he suspended most travel from Europe on March 11th, and by the way, we know because of the stock buyouts and stuff that Congress knew otherwise, right? Yeah. They were having private briefings where they were cashing out. They were cashing out big time. Meanwhile, the face of this government was denying it still. Yeah. So explain more about what that was. What happened? Yeah. There. So they're yeah, getting sure. the U.S. government's getting intelligence briefings. Yes. About yeah. this coming pandemic mm -hmm. that we're going to become the same level that uh, China is at or worse. And yeah. What yeah. was the result of those? Yeah. So so. At the same time that Trump is saying this virus will not have a chance against us, right? And this is a hoax. You had people going out on the floor with gas masks on to literally mock people who were taking this seriously. At the same time, you had Senate Intelligence Chairman Richard Burr um, dumping between 580,000 and 1.56 million of his stocks on February 13, days after writing a Fox News op-ed. And don't even get me started on what Fox News was fucking doing during this time. They were literally denying it the whole time. 
kept showing zero deaths so far in the U.S., therefore we shouldn't give a shit. Um, really outrageous, right? Days after writing an op-ed for Fox that said the U.S. is better prepared than ever before to face public health threats like the coronavirus. At the same time, he was dumping all of these stocks, cashing in big time because he knew. He knew what was coming. And he dared to say this publicly, right? Just like all these people on Fox News were saying, you had uh, that that guy who I think Trump was going to like appoint him to some ridiculous government office, the sheriff, right? That that. Oh yeah, the cowboy hat. The guy. cowboy hat guy who came out and he was like, everyone needs to defy the government. This is go out totalitarian. Go out and shop, just like after 9/11. Go. Out, don't let Al Qaeda win. Don't let the terrorists win. Don't let the coronavirus win. Go spend money. Go to the malls. Go to bars. Go to restaurants. It, it was sociopathic behavior. Uh, coming from Fox News anchors. So it's been quite astounding to see the shift in their tone and rhetoric And the stock recently. dump, right, the stock dump was not just because they knew that there is this health crisis that was going to come and kill people, but they knew that it was going to cause the economy right, to exactly. go completely under. Millions of people are going to lose their jobs. Exactly. Small businesses were going to go out of business. And so it was like, oh, well, like, everyone else is going to be fucked. Like all these American <laughs> workers are going to be screwed. So I might as well make sure that I get mine, you know, save some of my millions of dollars uh, for my vacation home and stuff. Um, so they knew that that was coming also. They, don't, yeah, exactly. they didn't just know that people were going to die. There was going to be this massive preparation effort needed. But they knew that economically there needed to be a, a massive uh, plan put in place, which they you know didn't care about at all. Yeah. And um, I just wanted to get this out of the way. I know you mentioned this briefly, but it's not, quote unquote, an old person's disease. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that, how many times I've been yeah. told that. Don't worry, you'll be fine. This affects old people. First of all, I, even if it did just affect old people, that is pretty messed up to kind of discard the elderly in the population and be like, it's okay if they die, you'll be fine. That's crazy, that's crazy. We need to look out for the elders in our society, the people who are susceptible to becoming severely ill from this virus. But that's not the case at all. Right. New CDC data shows that nearly 40% of patients sick enough to be hospitalized in the US were aged 20 to 54. Yeah. American adults of all ages are being seriously sickened by the virus, according to a report on the on the first 2,500 cases in the U.S. 38% of those hospitalized were noticeably younger, between 20 and 54. Um, half of the 121 patients admitted to ICU were also under 60, according to the CDC. So. It's been startling. Uh, we were, you know, we, we kind of took a break from the internet for a while. We came back to town. We saw how serious it was uh, right away. I mean, we tried to go to Walmart. We were boarding a plane. Um, we realized the hoarding, the excess, uh, the bizarre behavior, uh, very antisocial behavior. I mean, supply chains coming to a completely dead halt. People hoarding hand sanitizer, toilet paper, paper towels, uh, alcohol wipes uh, at Walmart. When we went there, we tried to just get um, sanitization for ourselves. And the woman who worked there just said some woman came in and bought an entire carton. They said, we just got a new ship. We were out. We just got a new <laughs> shipment like, in. And then one person bought the entire shipment. It's like, like well, why, why did you... you let them? <laughs> why did you let them do that? And why is this being allowed? And we saw a story and this is like such peak capitalism in the, in the decaying empire, like people just looking out for themselves, some guy, some psycho who had a shirt on that said like family man, family business. And he went around the entire country as soon as this broke out and bought every single bottle of hand sanitizer and alcohol wipe that he could find in every mom and pop store and had literally tens of thousands in a U-Haul truck that he was selling for hundreds of dollars on eBay 
which then Amazon quickly revoked <laughs> his ability to sell because it's like illegal. You can't do that. So then he's just stuck with a garage full of crates of hand sanitizer. He's like, oh, I can't sell and these online. And he's like, you know what? I'm not sorry. Yeah. I'm actually not sorry for doing right. this. And the guy was like, wow, that's really bizarre. Um, so but anyway, I did want to yeah, comment yeah, on yeah. something you said, though, about because it goes this whole idea that it's not just an older person's disease. That's an everybody's disease. When Abby mentioned that Italy has had to implement a triage system where everyone over 60 doesn't get treated. Now that applies to what Abby's saying about it's not just a person for people who are elderly. Thank you, Juan that, Lopez. Thank you, Juan Appreciate Lopez. You. Uh, and we'll get to some of the other super chats in a second. But what, what Abby meant by that, they've had to implement a triage where over 60, you don't get treated. That's because that curve, we talk about flattening the curve, that curve is going up, the cases exceed the number of hospital beds that exist in the country, including emergency hospital beds, ventilators, things like that. And so Italy has had to implement this, which very well likely will be implemented in the US as well. Because so many people who are under 60, so many people age 20 uh, to, to 50 are getting infected with this and are in critical condition. And so when you go, so that over 60 doesn't get treated means that so many people are going into the ICU so many people are in critical condition that the hospitals have had to have a mandate to say, if you're being admitted to the ICU and you are over 60, you are going out in the hallway and you're not getting treated, you're not getting a ventilator. Because we have so many people under 60 who are coming in who they have a better chance of living, but they will die also if they don't get treated. Absolutely and so that kind shocking. of triage system that has had to be created, and they've had to do this because it's just based on what uh, their capacity is. Uh, the United States is very much uh, possibly in that going to be entering that window as well. And so all of these demands are going to be talking about the need to mass produce things that we can be fighting for right now as we're you know two weeks or so behind those levels, fighting for the mass production of ventilators, fighting for the mass production of masks, all the things that are going to be needed for people, the creation of mass uh, treatment units all across the country, outside of hospitals and so forth. Um, these are very urgent political demands. And we have a small window to, to pre prepare ourselves, keep ourselves safe, and make the demands on the government that are necessary to, uh, to mitigate something like this happening. And unfortunately, you have, you know, extreme libertarians like Ron and Rand Paul, who have been releasing, I don't know, weekly newsletters saying the coronavirus hoax, you know, Rand Paul, shockingly or not so shockingly, was the first senator to contract the virus. Um, this just happened today, right before we started this broadcast. And, and he was at the gym all morning. He was having lunch with several colleagues. It's like, I'm sorry, are you not following the shelter in place order? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that you're not taking it seriously at all. You thought it was a hoax. But wow, I mean, you're really putting a lot of people in danger here. So he has the virus. Um, you just saw that Harvey Weinstein contracted it. He is sitting, I don't know if it's jail they put him in isolation. So he is. In jail. Is he in prison? Yeah. He's okay. In jail. So that means that uh, you know this is going to be an outbreak in in prisons across America. We just saw the first uh, prisoner in Rikers Prison contract the virus. This is absolutely devastating. They are not doing proper quarantine measures within the prison facilities. They are just simply saying no one sit on each other's beds and just like lay you know sit sit uh, like a foot away from each other. This is not going to stop and, and it's just going to get worse. And so I hope that we can keep those people in our minds as well. You and know, also Iran, the homeless population. Iran just released everyone in prison wow, over the age crazy. of 60 or something like that. That's crazy. They're like, we can't, we don't have the ability to keep them safe. And so you're just, just go, go home. I mean, the homeless population here in the epicenter of the crisis of homelessness in the U.S., which is Los Angeles, it's it's too much to bear. It's too much to bear what will happen on Skid Row, what will happen to these tent communities. I know that homeless families are taking property and, and taking space. And I encourage 
you know, their fight and solidarity and their, their struggle to do so because it's really a matter of life and death for a lot of these people. But oddly enough, Mike, celebrities seem to constantly be tweeting that they're fine, that, that right. they're totally fine. Tested. <laughs> yeah, yeah everyone, all the celebrities, if they're not singing Imagine to us, um, they're talking about how they're either sick from COVID-19 or they're fine that they got tested for COVID-19. They're all sick because they're all hanging out with Justin <laughs> yeah. Trudeau and his wife, right. which I, I guess is a thing that uh, celebrities do. They go hang out with like presidents of other countries. But yeah, all of them are sick from, no, I just elbow and stuff from, from Trudeau and his wife. Yeah, the thing is, why, why are these celebrities getting, I mean, I know that they're really, really obscenely rich. They're all complaining about being quarantined in their giant mansions. But the thing is, they don't have to go to the hospitals, right? The doctors come to them. The hospitals come to them. Uh, it's obscene. And so it's just kind of gross to be reminded that celebrities have this kind of status and privilege in society where they're always able to do more than anyone else. And it's just really gross. So no, I don't really stand in solidarity with all the celebrities who are kind of touting that they've gotten tested. I mean, it's it's pretty obscene. I mean, why don't you send those tests to the healthcare workers who are working on the front lines and getting sick and potentially dying, putting their lives on the line, helping these people? Um, Mike, you mentioned how the government and just how the system of capitalism is fucking up abysmally in response uh, to the spread of COVID-19. We mentioned Trump acting way too late, denying the existence of the virus at first. The stock trading, the stock buyouts from all of these insight, you know, the insider trading going on. The unprecedented corporate bailouts that the Republicans are proposing now. I was pretty alarmed. I, I assumed that every industry was going to take advantage of this and ask for a giant, massive one, bailout. Right. right. What was that? Um, well, th I don't know the writing on the wall in terms of the, the legislation federal, that the was. The Federal Reserve one. What was it? The $1.5 trillion that right. Ben Bernanke, the head of the Federal Reserve, just said he'd move decimals around and just move some money around and just gave money to the corporations. Oh, that, that's so interesting that you could do that. I thought that where was the money going to come from? Berating over and over again. How are we going to get health care? How are we going to pay for this? How are we going to pay for this? Just move some fucking decimals around, right? In the Federal Reserve and just give $1.5 trillion to corporations. What I was really shocked about, which we just learned from the Bernie stream, was that it's not just the airline industry. It's not just casinos. Like, let casinos die, right? Let, let the cruise industry die. It's a petri dish. Why are we even taking cruises now? It's it's absolutely bizarre that this is like our priority is saving cruise lines. And not the workers. Not the, the workers. No, no, no. I, I understand that workers comprise of these industries. There's no protections and safeguards for workers right. in these bailouts. And as we know from the past, from the bailout of the banks and the auto industry, they're not going to protect workers. Right. They're going to fire workers and give these CEOs millions and millions of dollars in bonuses. This is how yeah. these bailouts work. So this is what the GOP and the Senate is doing now. But check this out. This is what I thought was hilarious. Candy industry, the candy industry, Mars, the Mars family. They want to fucking bail out, Mike. Why not? They're one of the richest families in America. They're like the Waltons, the Marses or whatever. Is candy even being, I'm still eating candy. I mean, when yeah, I go to the no. store, I'm eating chocolate. What, how is this being affected whatsoever by the crisis? It's absolutely bizarre. Why do the, own, why do the Mars uh, <laughs> dynasty need a bailout is the question. I mean, so they're selling less candy, candy bars. Okay, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. if, if they have to lay people off, uh, we'll make sure that those people get, you know, 100% unemployment and are compensated and so forth with government money. But why does like, the Mars mogul himself need like, to, what were they asking for, the Mars? Uh, like $50 million or something. That's nothing. Yeah, no, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. Just move some decimals around, right, Bernanke? Uh, the hotel industry, 
this might seem like an obvious one because of the lack of people who are taking vacations, but this would massively benefit Trump. Think about that. So, I mean, as we're talking about just the system failure in general, I think that story really becomes really, really dramatic um, as an example of the failure of the system. That woman who was uninsured, who had to pay, who who is now charged with a $35,000 medical bill, who got COVID-19 and was just simply going through tests in and out of the ICU for just a couple of days. And that's the bill that she was slapped with when she got out. How is she going to pay for that? I have no idea. Um, millions of people who are uninsured, underinsured, millions of undocumented people who will not get tested, who will not get treated because they simply can't afford it. Or they're scared. What are we doing? What are we doing here? Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think that there's, you know, there's a comment, you know, from civil proxy in the super chat about the potential for this to turn into mass labor fight back, financial strikes, labor strikes, and so forth. Um, I think it's, of course, that's a potential because there's gonna have to be a real working class fight back and struggle of people who are employed who are employed and people who are unemployed. Now, I think one of the significant things, I mean, already uh, it was reported that 18% of workers in America have lost their jobs or who have lost a significant amount of hours. Um, there's estimates that unemployment throughout the crisis could enter uh, up to 30%. Um, to put that in the perspective, the height of the Great Depression uh, unemployment was 25%. So 5% uh, more than at the height of the Great Depression. And in the Great Depression, there is a huge amount of labor struggle and civil unrest aimed at doing precisely these things. In fact, there were unemployment strikes where unemployed people uh, took part in labor actions, uh, as well as people who were in unions or people who were employed and fighting for better wages and stuff. And so, of course, this opens up a extreme amount of potential. Mm-hmm. I think that's difficult under the conditions of the actual health crisis, where we can't be going to any pickets or demonstrations right now. Uh, We have to be thinking creatively about the ways we can push for these things while we are at home. Um, But then once the uh, crisis is able to wane and we're able to be outside again, now is the time to be preparing for what when we can get in the streets. Now is the time to be preparing for what we're going to do when we can get in the streets again, because uh, there's going to be no recovery for workers unless it's fought for. Um, Even with all the great things Bernie and AOC and others are doing, in the Congress trying to push forward, it's up against a lot and none of that is gonna happen without uh, grassroots support behind them. Absolutely. The only good thing Trump has done, and this needs to be expanded, is enact emergency war powers of the Defense Production Act. And this is something that should be done with all of these corporations. It shows you how quickly nationalization would be able to aid these efforts to force corporations' hands to help produce the things that are in shortage of uh, ventilators, masks, all these things. I just saw nurses in the U.S. wearing garbage bags. This is the, the richest country in the history of the world. We're literally giving nurses like shit that you would see on Grey's Anatomy. Um, they need to be wearing full like hazmat suit protections, just like you see in China, as you see in these other countries who are taking it very, very seriously. Um, and instead, you see people suiting themselves with garbage bags and plastic bags. It's it's ab- obscenely absurd. So the fact that this Defense Production Act has been enacted is a great first step. Um, it will accelerate the production of medical supplies and force General Motors to now produce ventilators and help aid that effort. Yeah. Where are all the other all the other corporations? We need much more than just this. We need testing kits. We need, of course, um, triage equipment, and we need to be supplying this on the front lines of of, of the fight. Yeah, like that. the The idea that um, 
there's people who are going to get saved and people who are not going to get saved. That decision is based on the number of ventilators. Ventilators mm -hmm. are the number one thing people in critical condition with COVID-19 need. Because at a certain point, your lungs can't get enough oxygen to be able to breathe. A ventilator is what's saving people's lives. Uh, there's not enough ventilators in the United States to handle this crisis, just like there's not in Italy. Uh, why aren't there enough ventilators? Well, a ventilator costs about $50,000 each. They're not actually worth $50,000 each. That's just how much medical supply companies charge when they're selling it to hospitals and so forth so they can make a nice profit. It costs significantly uh, less than that to produce a ventilator. So a ventilator is you know, probably nowhere near $50,000 in cost. But even hospitals aren't buying them because hospitals are businesses also. So like Kaiser yeah. Permanente, uh, the hospital system in California, they make like $4 billion a quarter in profits. You know, They have like 100 billion on reserves or some, some shit like that. Um, why aren't they just buying every available ventilator to be ready? Well, there's still a CEO of that company saying, well, we don't want to be left with a massive surplus and excess of ventilators once this crisis is over. Our board, the board of directors and our shareholders aren't going to be very ha happy that we wasted all of our four billion in profits buying you know, enough ventilators to, to meet public need. And when Abby's referring to this uh, a Defense Production Act, that means that the government takes over every medical supply company and big pharmaceutical company that could be producing the antivirals that are proving effective types of treatment, um, but that could be producing ventilators, masks, all those things, you take them over and you make them produce or repurpose them to produce other things that are needed. If we could, in World War II, repurpose the entire US economy, seize companies like you know General Electric and other things mm -hmm. that were taken over by the government and force them to produce tanks and bombs and bullets and medical gear and all the stuff that was needed to fight in World War II on a very quick basis, we can be doing that now. Um, the U.S. government could do it today. Uh, the only reason they're not doing it is because because they don't want to do it, uh, because there's not enough pressure on them to do it. Yeah, because that we're owned and captured by corporations. And that's why you see big pharma already completely increasing and price gouging the potential vaccines that are out there. Um, in the in contrary, you see Cuba. And I just wanted to get in quickly to what yeah. Cuba's response has been, because this is a country that's been under severe economic embargo, crippling sanctions from the U.S. empire, literally just upheld solely by the U.S. empire and by its vassal state, Israel, for the last couple of years. Right. Every other country has said, please lift these sanctions. This is absurd. But the U.S. continues to uphold them. Trump has abolished the normalization process that Obama put into place. So Cuba is a small, isolated communist country that has been on the front lines of medical solidarity with every single humanitarian disaster that has unfolded in the last decade. They have been there, whether it's the earthquake in Haiti, whether it's COVID-19, they are now sending dozens and dozens, I think over 50 doctors to the epicenter of the crisis in Italy right now, risking their lives for international solidarity, because that's what Cuba is based on. Um, not only that, but you had on March 12th, you had this British ocean liner with 50 passengers who were displaying symptoms of COVID-19. They could not embark anywhere. They could not uh, they could not find anywhere to dock anywhere in the Bahamas. The U.S. rejected them. Um, they were rejected everywhere. It took six days later where Cuba just finally said, come here, come here. We'll take you in. Um, and Cuba's foreign minister said that Cuba's humanitarian response um, was to reinforce solidarity and international cooperation. Not only that, but as we know, Cuba's healthcare system is among the best in the world. They offer free training to become medical doctors to literally anyone who wants it for free. I, I went to this center in Cuba. I did a whole report on it for breaking the set. 
they are on the cutting edge of developing life-saving vaccinations, whether it's a lung cancer vaccination, whether it's the first, um, the first, what was it, the the mother to infant transmission of HIV, yeah. they have abolished that with a vaccination. And now they have another drug that was developed by the Cuban biotech industry called interferon. Um, this is among the treatments that the Chinese government has already used to stem the coronavirus outbreak. And this is already what Chile and Spain have sought access to for the drug. I'm oh. sure that because of, of the U.S.'s arrogance um, and sanctions, the criminal genocidal sanctions on Cuba, we will not be using this drug. And instead, we will look to U.S. pharmaceutical industries to just price gouge the hell out of everyone and charge some absurd amount, just like it charged that poor young woman $35,000 for a couple tests. So that's where we're at with Cuba. And I think this whole thing shows the emergence of a new global order. I mean, the fact that these demonized countries like Cuba, like China, um, are taking the forefront, taking the lead now to extend solidarity, to extend cooperation and aid to countries that are now battling in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, Cuba is, you know, risking their doctors' lives to go help people around the world. China is offering millions and millions uh, of tons of medical equipment, masks, ventilators to Europe, extending their solidarity and aid. Meanwhile, the U.S. is just fomenting aggression and war against both of these countries and we're going to get into Iran and what's been going on under the radar with them. But I think it's really yeah. important to to talk about the foreign policy response as these other countries, as it's clear that these other countries are stepping up to the plate and doing what's necessary and needed, right? In this global fight, we're all in this together as one human family. And the U.S., of course, is paving its own way as a belligerent empire, um, as a rotting, decaying empire and, and actually taking the coronavirus and exploiting it to engage and commit acts of warfare. Yeah, and before we get into that, though, there's yeah. this interesting dynamic playing out where you have the socialist countries, you know, China and Cuba, you know, leading the world and helping others. But also, there's a um, there's this other component that shows kind of the difference between capitalism and socialism and what it means for the world. So, big pharma is racing to find a vaccine for COVID nineteen. China is racing to find a vaccine for COVID-19. Um, China's motivations are to, you know, give the vaccine to people, make it available to the entire world and make that formula available to the entire world. Um, but the big pharma companies, they plan to sell that vaccine. If, if the capitalist world develops the COVID-19 vaccine first, they're gonna charge an exorbitant amount of money for it, lock it down with intellectual property rights and not allow and whatever company gets it first is not going to allow any other company to develop the vaccine. Um, it's going to have to buy it uh, from them and as much as they can produce as fast as they can. So there's this race going on between social, a socialist system and a capitalist system to come up with a vaccine. If capitalism wins, it means it's going to be locked down under intellectual property. It's going to be very difficult for people to get, it's going to be very expensive for people to get, where if China develops it first, uh, it, it won't be that situation at all. The other interesting thing is big pharma is studying, is reaching a vaccine through our tax dollars. It is federal <laughs> research money that is that is being used, but is given to Big Pharma to do this research for the so-called common good, but then Big Pharma will own the intellectual property rights, whichever company develops it, to develop that vaccine. It's absurd. And we'll get into how the candidates responded differently, but this is pretty much the only thing Joe Biden has uh, said in terms of his <laughs> COVID-19 policy, is that he broke with uh, many Democrats uh, led by Bernie and others, saying that, uh, you know, that they are saying that the U.S. could use some, the government could use some executive power to say to Big Pharma, if you're developing a vaccine with federal money, 
then once you develop the vaccine, you shouldn't be able to charge whatever you want for it. And Biden said, no, they, they should be able to charge whatever they want for it. You know, it's an example of what a Biden and the Democratic <laughs> Party establishment represent. It's Wall Street's need, uh, greed over people's needs. Yeah, Joe Biden missing in action here. By coming, uh, missing in action, except when he has to come out and say, hey, don't tell Big Pharma what they can charge for the vaccine. If right. they want to charge $100 a pop, right. uh, let them. Let them do what they want. Uh, thank you, Joe. By the way, thanks, Appreciate Blanche you. TV, very much, uh, your comment. Um, oh, thank you, Blanche. How do you balance the need for safety while the DOJ takes advantage of this situation? Right. spend constitutional rights. Is there anything you want to we're, say about We're going to get into that, Blanche, at the end. We're going to talk about what the DOD, uh, DOJ is doing to propose potential martial law measures and the curbing of civil liberties. I mean, it's scary to think of the Trump administration taking advantage of this crisis. And a lot of people, frankly, cheering on uh, emergency measures under Trump. I mean, I've read that, yeah, he can't he can't postpone the election. But I think that um, anything's possible with this president. And I think that it's not past Trump to expect that he will exploit it in every way possible to absorb um, more power than he's ever had in an unprecedented fashion, something that we've never seen before. And so I think that we really need to stand together and oppose any sort of legislation that would permanently cement something like another Patriot Act, like something that would suspend our civil liberties. I mean, and, and we'll talk about what's already happening behind the scenes later on. I appreciate you, Blanche. It's good to hear from you. Let's talk really briefly about the foreign policy response going on, because this is something that is absolutely Nazi-esque. Um, Iran is the Middle East nation that has hit the hardest from the coronavirus. Its death toll has climbed to 1,300. One person is dying every 10 minutes. 50 are becoming infected every hour, according to the health ministry. Every single article written about this blames Iran for its own ineptitude, blames the Iranian government for hiding, for being shady, for covering up the crisis, for, for you know, its ineffective response, without mentioning the crippling, devastating sanctions that have been put into place on Iran. Trump is increasing U.S. sanctions during this pandemic. When there is a need for global solidarity, despite everything else, right, Trump is increasing U.S. sanctions like the Nazi that he is. He is putting more sanctions on Iran during this pandemic. It is unconscionable what the U.S. is doing. Fresh sanctions on Iran this week in a maximum pressure campaign. And I want to make this clear. 800 sanctions have already been placed on Iran. A lot of people don't realize this or how many that really means in the scale of what other presidential administrations have done. There's a sanctions tracker, I forget the name of it right now, but we've covered this in Trump Expanding the Empire on Empire Files. The sanctions that Trump has has deployed around the world to all of these countries is unbelievable. Yeah, how many did Obama put on Iran? Obama had around 100. No, but then he, but then the, the nuclear deal went down to zero. So that was a condition of the nuclear deal was zero sanctions on Iran in order for them to whatever, blah, 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 blah. But every other presidential administration had probably maximum 100, right? Trump has put 800, 800 sanctions on Iran. I don't even know what he's not sanctioning at this point. Like, what is there left to sanction there? That is what the Iranian government is saying. That's what they're urging. That is what they're speaking out against, that they don't have the adequate medical supplies to deal with this, that they cannot do widespread testing, that they cannot... Um, they don't have the ventilators necessary. They don't have the medical equipment necessary. This is exactly what sanctions do. This is why we're so passionate about sanctions equaling war. I mean, th this is war. This is meant to suffocate and starve a population. 
So if we're not talking about food supplies like we see in Venezuela, we're talking about medical supplies specifically. This is the collateral damage that the U.S. intends to impose on its quote unquote enemy countries that don't comply with its global demands. This is exactly what the intended consequence has been for Iran. And then you see people like Mike Pompeo, these sociopaths, literally just relishing in the outcome that sanctions have had in Iran. I mean, you have Pompeo saying, yes, Washington will maintain its maximum pressure campaign to choke Tehran's ability to export its oil. And also just issued some ridiculous statements saying that Iran is a bad actor that's spreading misinformation about the U.S. and its amazing response to the pandemic. Um, it is just absolutely criminal. It is sociopathic. It is Nazi-esque. And it needs to be stopped. And it needs to be stopped. But you do not see anyone actually urging for this to happen other than a, a few progressives in Congress. I mean, every single think tank across the board is is literally praising the Trump administration's sanctioning right. of Iran during this time. I, I just can't wrap my mind around it. So th that's not it, Mike. And I don't know if you want to say anything about the sanctions before I move on to what's happening in Iraq. No, I mean, they're that's good. They need medical. So they, if you were a even if you want were a government that wanted to overthrow the Islamic Republic of Iran, and even if you agreed with, you know, uh, the provocations and the sanctions and all that stuff, uh, knowing what the people of Iran are going through, civilians, um, in, in regards to COVID-19, and knowing that it'll impact the world, mm -hmm. right? Right, we can't, yeah, exactly. The world has to come together to destroy the virus and to prevent an outbreak at this scale from happening again. The world has to do it together. Uh, that means with people that we don't like, even if you're someone who doesn't like Iran or some of these other countries that you're talking about. We have to work together to stop it. And so you could at least say, sanctions are suspended for three months to make sure that Iran has what it needs to fight. Do you think Iran is going to go build a nuclear bomb in the next uh, <laughs> two months instead while they're dealing with a, a pandemic on this level where almost every single person in their parliament is infected and dying and, and many have died? Some of their highest officials are, are dying and uh, from the virus. Um, and so you could, that's what like a compassionate, even a compassionate like capitalist government do. Say, so, you know what? <laughs> we understand and for the collective needs of the whole world need to come together. But instead the US empire sees this as an opportunity to further destroy the countries they want to destroy. They're happy if Iran has massive numbers of people die, their, their government is, is in ruins, uh, you know, it's very difficult for them to move forward in society. That's what a lot of US foreign policy is aimed at. It's not just going and overthrowing someone, it's just destroying the country so they don't exist as much as a competitor. So focusing on oil, it's because the US wants everyone to buy their oil exports right now, because now the US has become a major oil exporter or the, the top in the world. So even in the midst of this, they're like, we buy our oil, not Iran's oil. And so as an opportunity to devastate their economy for capitalist profits is, uh, you know, just speaks to the true nature of, of the US empire, not in the interest of even, you know, those of us, like we're hurting because uh, this is happening. We have many friends who are Iranian, it's uh, very, tragic to know that it's like um you know shani's like she's having yeah. a hard time even reaching her family in iran mm -hmm. so she has no idea how they're doing you, you can't call them no no one's answering and so it's um you know uh it's horrible and it just lays bare you know this is another thing that should help radicalize it should help you understand the real nature of u.s foreign right. policy looking at it through through this lens absolutely and under the cover of the coronavirus hysteria, the Trump administration is not extending an arm of global solidarity as we're talking about right now, and in fact, doing quite the opposite, which they're plotting war <laughs> and, and actually using this crisis as a means to cripple Iran further, not just with sanctions, 
but to bomb so-called Iranian-backed militias in Iraq, basically the same precursor that the U.S. criminally took out General Soleimani um, a couple months ago after, you know, in retaliation to the bogus claim that an Iranian-backed militia who was responsible engineered by General Soleimani himself and he was taken out by a drone in an unprecedented fashion in the middle of the day in Iraq, the same kind of things are happening under the radar today that are being completely omitted from the corporate media. Uh, the U.S. has been carrying out airstrikes against Iraq based on the same logic that I just said. Increase so, them because increase of the, them. Yeah, no. They've already killed 26 members, and this was just one airstrike, so I, I, I'm sure the number is much higher today. I know that there was also news, allegedly, of another Iranian general that was yeah. killed. 26 members of the Iraqi military that we're supposedly allies with, that that we were supporting in the fight against that ISIS was, in the region. That was, I think, a mistake, yeah. They're, just, they're bombing so much. They're, they're bombing so much, yeah. Allies yeah, no, I mean, they don't, we don't care. You know, right. it doesn't matter if it's if collateral damage or not. Um, and so the U.S. is threatening to do more. They're openly talking about how they can close in on Iran during this time of weakness. Administration officials are just clearly writing and reviewing that they're looking at an additional array of targets, including more militia weapons depots and logistics storehouses, as well as strikes against military leaders and Iranian ships. I mean, can yeah. you imagine if something like that breaks out while this is happening? And that's why. I mean, so it was I think it was March 16th or something not too long ago. You know, like the, when the U.S. assassinated Soleimani, it was a major international crisis. We thought we were, you know, we did a live stream then. It was, it seemed imminent that there was going to be some kind of war between the U.S. and Iran. It put the whole world on a precipice of a global, you know, World War III, set off by this one action of unilaterally assassinating uh, a, a, you know, an Iranian uh, general in Iraq, where the U.S. has no right to bomb anyway. So they just did it again on March 16th, mm -hmm. knowing that because the Iranian government was in such crisis, dealing with the pandemic, that they couldn't mount the same type of political and military response that they did to the assassination of Soleimani. They couldn't call demonstrations of millions in the streets like they did after the assassination of Soleimani, make it a major international scandal, go to the UN and uh, demand condemnations of the United States. They knew that they were crippled to do any of that because they were reeling from this crisis. And so the Trump administration is acting with extreme belligerence on a foreign policy side in regards to Iran, the same stuff that almost got us into a war you know, just a few months ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as we mentioned before, Gaza is already experiencing COVID-19. 2.2 million people are trapped in Gaza. You know, watch Gaza Fights for Freedom. We talked earlier in the stream about the, the discount code. Please take advantage of that while we're all quarantined inside. Please get an insight on what people are going through in Gaza right now. Needless to say, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that Israel and the U.S. will exploit this crisis and, and call the herd more. Um, mow the lawn, as, as military officials say, which is basically just let people die uh, or kill them intentionally. And that's exactly what we will see in Gaza. This is why we can't forget about our brothers and sisters in Gaza who are already suffering from a dire humanitarian crisis. And this is surely to get exacerbated, get, get even more grave. They already are lacking medical equipment. I can't imagine you know, what they will need if this outbreak spreads within that territory. As I mentioned, you have think tanks on the cusp of parading around saying that we should use this opportunity to cripple Iran further, to wage war with Iran. You have the Atlantic Council basically saying that Trump should declare an Article 5 declaration of war against the deadly pathogen. 
This is what happens when you live in a decaying empire that's built up nothing but the military industrial complex. Yeah, let's just let's just declare an actual act of war, um, some military authorization to combat a, a pathogen. I mean, what does that even mean? I think that what their policy platform basically says is that we need to isolate China. So all of these think tanks that have been um, begging Trump to take China as a serious threat, all of them are pretty joyous because this is their opportunity to really, um, you know, pursue that policy within the administration. All the neocons, all the think tanks, they know that China is a next kind of um, economic chopping block and they know what a threat it poses uh, globally in terms of U.S. capitalism. And so they're all kind of lining up behind the scenes saying, hey, this is our time to actually take yeah. out emergency measures to isolate China, to stop dealing with China. It is shocking. As Blanche mentioned, I wanted to just briefly talk about what the DOD and DOJ are doing behind the scenes. Um, I think that it's good that you have measures being taken to and for quarantine measures. Was right? that all Across, in China that you had? No, 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 of course not. Okay. We're going to get, do you want me okay, to skip cool. to the China yeah, yeah, part? Yeah, okay, so let's, let's keep going stuff. to the China. Because they are actually taking action. It's not just that yeah, the no. rhetoric has increased and the rhetoric is pretty disgusting. I think you found some uh, more wild examples of that. Uh, you know, yeah. we have to reject the anti-China racism. Um, you know, there's actually a long history in the United States of blaming mm -hmm. China for diseases. You look at old medical textbooks and there's like the diseases of the Chinamen and it's like leprosy and all these things like this is. So there's a long running history of racism, even within the medical establishment, about yeah. Chinese people bringing disease. Uh, COVID-19 is not caused by China, is not caused by Chinese people. Um, you know, uh, these are diseases that occur in animals, they jump species very easily. You know, for example, SARS, you know, a lot of these, uh, the coronaviruses start in a bat and they jump species to something that humans have more contact with and then it's able to jump to humans. So like SARS, it was in a bat and then it jumped to civet, which is like a wild cat. And then it jumped to a person that came in contact with mm -hmm. it. MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, another coronavirus. It was in a bat, then it jumped to a camel and then it, which a person had to, and then it was able to jump uh, to humans. So. The fact that it originated in China is no fault of the Chinese people, no fault of how anything is done in China. It's just where that particular virus, you know, coronas are in the Middle East or other places in, in the world. You know, they're, these are global things, as we can see now. Um, so the fact that it originated in China, being used to somehow demonize China, I mean, it's, it's disgusting, could happen anywhere. Uh, and we have to like fully reject that. But not only are they exacerbating this type of racism, you know, Trump calling it the Chinese virus, um, but, you know, they're actually taking political action around it, using these words also. So right. the words are meant to, to back up actual action. Exactly, Mike. This is, uh, this is basically cultivating a propaganda campaign for action, right, on the ground. And this is what we right. see as a precursor to every military action, to every sort of economic action on behalf of the U.S. empire. It starts with a propaganda campaign. And this yeah. is what we've seen hysterically increase in this country in the last couple months. As Mike just mentioned, Trump constantly calling this a war against the Chinese virus, a war against um, the Wuhan virus. A reporter asked Trump at one of these press conferences whether it was wrong and potentially harmful to Asian Americans to give the disease a name, considering the, the widespread hate crimes we're now seeing against Asian Americans in this country because of this. And um, also a White House official having privately termed it the Kung flu which has been widely condemned as racist, obviously. Trump responded, no, not at all, not at all. I think that they, meaning Asian Americans, probably would agree with it 100%. It comes from China. There's nothing not to agree. So 
The World Health Organization has said over and over again that labeling diseases and giving them location names is misleading, always unhelpful, and wrong. Uh, World Health Organization spokesperson says no country controls where disease emerges. Shaming does no good whatsoever. I mean, this is especially true in a globalized industry of that's increasingly dominated by giant corporations, especially large agricultural corporations, multinational corporations that are rapidly spreading viruses like these everywhere, given the chain of, of products and agriculture being spread. One other really interesting thing, a lot of people have compared this to the Spanish flu, basically 100 years ago, which is kind of eerie, that also killed, not that this virus has killed millions of people, but projections, conservative projections are actually saying that it could kill millions of people worldwide. The Spanish flu did kill, uh, what, at least a million people worldwide in 1918. Do you know the death toll there? But um, according to Merriam-Webster, this is really interesting. Everyone thinks that it oh it originated from Spain, right? Because it was called the Spanish flu. Well, the name the Spanish flu resulted from wartime censorship in the U.S. and Europe that kept stories about the rapidly spreading influenza out of newspapers. No fighting country wanted to show weakness to its enemy and advertise such a problem among its military. Only when the influenza spread to, sp spread to Spain that was neutral in World War I was full press coverage provided and the disease was finally covered and explicitly described as an epidemic. Because of this, many believed that the influenza began in Spain and thus gave it the name the Spanish flu. Really interesting piece of history. Mm. Um, and, you know, just getting back to what the government is doing, it's disgusting. You have Senator Tom Cotton actually making the rounds. This was a guy who was like Bill Crystal's henchman. I mean, this was a guy who was being propped up as potentially a presidential candidate yeah. uh, a cycle ago and probably will be back. This guy's nuts. One of the most rabid neocons out there. He is out there everywhere saying that it's engineered at a Chinese lab, that the coronavirus is engineered at a super lab in Wuhan. He tweeted recently, the Chinese Communist Party lies and corruption turn a local health problem into a global pandemic, devastating lives and dreams. There will be a reckoning. What is that reckoning, Tom? Um, you know, you have Senator John Corrin saying China's to blame because the culture is where people eat bats and snakes and dogs. And, you know, basically going back and blaming China for SARS and MERS and the swine flu as well. Think pieces everywhere. And, and as we know, think tanks provide the policy platforms for policy to be enacted by the U.S. empire. Trump administration is not thinking of these things on their own. They're not creating these documents on their own. They take prescriptions from the Atlantic Council um, and from other think tanks like the Atlantic Council, like the Defense of Democracies. I mean, neocon rabid think tanks that are propping up war with China and have been for years. And they are taking their prescriptions to heart and em employing them, right? Or they will employ them. So the think pieces around the corporate media are written by people who work for these think tanks, right? And the, and the think tanks, of course, are funded by defense contractors and banks and oil companies. So this is how the machine works, right? This is how the propaganda machine works. And you have think pieces from Washington Post to New York Times to all these corporate media agencies blaming not just China, Mike. No, not just China. You have Josh Rogan, even one of the most dangerous neocons, Bloomberg boy, saying, oh, no, no, we shouldn't blame China. We should blame the Chinese Communist Party because that's what this is really about. If China were just another capitalist power that was subservient to the US empire, this conversation wouldn't be happening, right? But it's because the Chinese Communist Party is in charge, that's who we should be blaming. 
So you see this everywhere, uh, you know, sowing the seeds of disinformation against the Communist Party specifically for creating the spread of the virus and don't believe anything the Chinese government's saying. And, and also any time that they have to admit that the Chinese government has, you know, done something good, which is give masks and ventilators to other countries who need it. They need to first <laughs> say, first of all, don't believe this. Don't let them do a victory lap. This is how dangerous the Chinese Communist Party has been for spreading this in the first place. Yeah, you know, really quickly, yeah. one of the funny things that you are, you're seeing all these news articles from, you know, these big corporate publications. And, you know, China has reduced its numbers to like no new cases per day. So you'd think we'd probably want other countries would it would it be nice to have some of their help, their excess medical materials, their knowledge on how to fight the crisis. But every time they do something like give ventilators, give masks, send doctors or anything, there's these articles in the mainstream U.S. corporate media that says China's sending masks, but to curry favor. Or they're yeah, doing yeah, this yeah. to curry favor. Right. And it's like, you know, China wiped out uh, new cases of COVID-19, but they better not help any other country and stop it from spreading because that might be seen as currying favor. And we don't want China to curry favor with anyone. That is unacceptable. It's like, well, like what? Okay, <laughs> when was currying favor even a bad thing? And like, to, it's just a a weird formulation that automatically triggers that like propaganda brain that so many Americans have. Like, oh, China trying to curry favor with those other government. Like, yeah, that's bad. It's like, well, think about what those <laughs> words actually even mean. First of all, they're not do if they're not doing it to curry favor. They're doing it to stop the spread of the virus that affects. China and the, and the rest of humanity, which I think China may care about. Um, so if currying favor is like a side effect because, oh, China sent fucking a thousand doctors and 10,000 ventilators to your country and it's resulted in currying favor, meaning people in that country like like China for doing that. Like, is that a, you know, obviously that's a natural outcome of it happening. It's not like a military strategic move that like it's being interpreted, uh, interpreted in the U.S. Yeah, I was surprised to see who I thought was a progressive, Matt Stoller, actually go as far as saying China committed a war crime against its own people and then the rest of the world as if this was all intentional. Now it's attacking anyone who claims it mishandled the virus. It's time to start taking the Chinese leadership as the most dangerous regime on the planet. That's interesting. I wonder how many uh, military bases China has around the world compared to the U.S. I wonder how many wars China has started um, in the last 50 years compared to the U.S. It seems odd to actually label them as the most dangerous regime on the planet. Yeah, and Matt. we'll see how the U.S. regime handles from? the crisis compared to China. So once we're through it like they are, we can assess who is a more dangerous regime. Yeah, and but it's also, also you know, um, it's feeding into that thing about how China spread it across the world. Like, like intentionally, it's almost what he's alleging. Right. If we would have listened to China at the beginning, China put out that this is a health emergency. The World Health Organization on like uh, in January, some, you know, in December, China announced that this was a thing, December 30th. Uh, middle or towards the end of January, the World Health Organization declared it was a, a health crisis of international concern. They've been trying to, you know, they've been trying to let people know that this is happening. The fact that you could try to blame them for the spread when they've been on the front lines of containing it is, you know, kind of just backwards history. Uh, Tucker Carlson, who I don't know why he's still called some sort of anti-establishment hero, um, but he is also on the front lines as the mouthpiece, the propaganda mouthpiece, essentially for the Trump administration, because we keep hearing these hot takes that he's stopping the war and that we can thank Tucker Carlson for, for actually keeping the peace in the world. Thanks, Tucker. Um, unfortunately, he is spreading dangerous neocon propaganda over and over again, starting his shows with these monologues about China needing to be contained, China being an imminent threat. 
So even if he did, let's just say best case scenario, he really did urge Trump to take COVID seriously, which is a really scary thought in the first place. He's at the same time feeding Trump's brain with anti-China xenophobic rhetoric about containing China and taking it seriously as an imminent threat. That's very disturbing. That needs to be called out and that should never be praised. And so I would encourage people to take a more critical eye about Tucker Carlson and his show and what role he's playing to spread this anti-China rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, this is Tucker Carlson. uh, You know, a lot of these media personalities, the reason that they have television shows and cable news is it because they come from exorbitantly wealthy families and have the connections they need to get these shows. Uh, Tucker Carlson is the heir to the hungry man dinner fortune. I don't know if you've ever been <laughs> down and out enough to be eating hungry man dinners. I went through a period of hungry man's in my life, but that's where Tucker gets his money and his clout is from the hungry man dinner, frozen dinner fortune. Um, but anyways, Tucker doesn't believe this. And these other pro-capitalist think tanks, all these people like Tom Cotton that are propagating this idea that it's a Chinese bioweapon and that the Chinese Communist Party mismanaged it so much we have to further isolate them. None of them believe this. They just think from a capitalist mindset, this is our opportunity to isolate a competitor mm-hmm. for our corporate profits. So just think of how sedit- the people that run this country. Well, he's also really racist. So I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't no, put that's, it past him that he actually. Right. Yeah, I agree to- with that. Um, where he, feel, he weaponizes racism yeah. to a great degree as well. Um, but for the mindset of the people that have the most power in this country and the most wealth, the ones that get all the, the tax breaks, all this stuff, the ones that have the highest power and, and status in our society, to them, they see we're all worried. Like we said earlier, we're worried about our families. We're worried about our jobs. We're worried about surviving physically and economically. The, the owners of industry... The capitalists, they're thinking, ooh, how can we use this to make some more money? They're not so much even concerned with the health crisis. They're quarantined in their palaces. And when the super rich in the United States or anywhere in the world, when they get sick, they don't have to go to the hospital that's short on ventilators. They don't go to any hospital at all. They already have a ventilator purchased that's going to be wheeled into their bedroom. They already have the top doctors that are private doctors that are going to be in their bedroom. They have all of the antivirals. They've, they've already bought all that shit up these billionaires and and multi-multi-millionaires. So the ones that are looking at how they can make money off the COVID-19 crisis and are taking action to influence foreign policy to make money, attacking China to make money and all of that stuff by eliminating economic competition, they already have their COVID-19 recovery room and test kits and everything all set up in their mansions already. And so there's just two, you know, like we are all in this together, but not with them. There's like, you know, there's, we are one nation and one planet, one human family going through this together, but excluding the billionaires. <laughs> right. Um, and my question is, do you trust Trump? Do you trust Trump, A, to deal with this crisis and B, to not exploit the crisis? You know what I mean? And, right. and we're seeing plans behind the scenes, as Blanche brought up earlier, that the National Guard, and, and I don't want to get too much into this of what the National Guard should or shouldn't be doing. I think the problem is that what is Trump going to do to exploit the military capacity and power of the military to potentially pass legislation, draconian legislation that will curb civil liberties perpetually. That's what we need to be looking out for. I'm not talking about just enacting quarantine measures across the country right now. And because of the police not being able to do it, I don't know why we wouldn't have the police do it because the police is so massive and overarmed in this country. It seems hard to even acknowledge that the National Guard would be needed. But um, but I, as you mentioned, Mike, you saw photos where they weren't armed and they were just like being yeah, used I mean, for 
civilian purposes. Yeah, so. the national and the National Guard coming out isn't inherently a bad thing. In fact, even Bernie has called for the National Guard to be mobilized to deal with the health crisis. I would far prefer the National Guard dealing with it than, than the, the police. police. Like right. the police, police in this country just suck all around. They're just all around bad people who had do nothing but bad things. They're horribly racist. Racism is already going to play a big role in this crisis. But having the police on the street, like you know, the police are terrible. They should just all be disbanded as an organization and uh, we have hire all new police under community council or something like that. So but that's in the National Guard. It's, you know, people might get freaked out by the National Guard coming out. I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. As I said, all the National Guard has been deployed without weapons, which is that's encouraging. Great. But I think that the reason that the National Guard and why Bernie and others have called for the National Guard to be mobilized to deal with the crisis is because the military is in itself a logistical operation. We're not mobilizing like infantrymen to go enforce checkpoints and quarantines and stuff like that. The military has within it has within its own strength. There's supply people, there's medical people, uh, there's there all types of different things, communications people. It's its own logistical infrastructure where a National Guard unit could come into a city, set up medical tents, uh, set up uh, communications, like set up all the things that you need. And so when we hear about the National Guard being deployed, it's under that capacity to serve a logistical function. I hope. Um, I hope so. I mean, right. I still don't trust any aspect of the U.S. military to do anything for humanitarian purposes, especially when the U.S. military is preparing forces to assume a larger role in the crisis, meaning aside from setting up triage centers and helping supply beds for hospitals, that's completely aside from the point of what they're doing. According to this Newsweek article, they're already trying to enact controversial measures of quelling civil disturbances. So this is in the case of insurrection. I mean, they're already like kind of propelling, like what are we projecting to happen if the economic crisis deepens? Um, insurrection, looting, uh, civil dis disturbances, meaning widespread protests, riots, unlawful obstructions or assemblages, group acts of quote unquote violence, disorders to public law. Uh, so this is something that could be interpreted in many different cases, you know, and, that, and that's something that I don't trust the U.S. military and or the Trump administration to do, frankly. Aside from that, it, this measure is being coupled with the DOJ that is quietly asking Congress for the ability to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergencies. So this mm -hmm. is where we could see something like another Patriot Act come to be. Um, new powers that Trump has under his belt, which is really, really disturbing to think of, tapping into a broader fear that a lot of critics have said from the beginning that Trump could potentially just suspend the elections, right? If something crazy happens like a new 9-11, I mean, God forbid, we we never could have foreseen that this would be our next 9-11, right? This widespread pandemic that is global under the leadership of, of someone like Donald Trump, I mean, who could completely exploit this. And the scary thing about it is people, I think, are so terrified and they just kind of have blind trust. And we're going to get into this right now, which is what Biden and Bernie are doing and what Trump is doing. Trump, even though he's lying incessantly doing these press conferences, which is completely full of misinformation, even though he ignored the virus for the first couple months, he is out there. He is out there every day making himself seen. And it's actually comforting to a lot of people who are his, his approval rating is what up to 55 percent in terms of how he's dealing with Pretty this crisis. High. That's because he's being seen, even though no one really even understands what damage he's doing. That's really scary 
That's a boost for the election if the election does indeed go through. I've read articles saying, you know, don't worry, Trump won't won't suspend the election because Congress needs to approve that. When the fuck? Look, <laughs> we've seen we've seen executive power do uh, a lot in the past, and I don't actually think that Congress is going to be like the stopping stopping block uh, for preventing Trump from doing anything drastic. We've already seen measures coming out under the radar saying that Trump is talking about this being an 18 month at the very least process that is well beyond the election. So we could very well see Trump become the de facto dictator who knew that this would happen because of this. But it is really disturbing where this could go based on what we're already seeing um, behind the scenes with the military industrial complex and with the executive branch exploiting this, Mike. So that's what I worry about. I think that people should keep a critical eye um, and don't let fear kind of, you know, let your guard down and just accept kind of bizarre totalitarian measures coming from the Trump administration. I'm totally for quarantining. I'm totally for the National Guard being employed to actually help hospital facilities. But this is something that I, I think can be a really dangerous slippery slope really soon. Yeah, because I, Trump has already used the pandemic as a reason for heightening border restrictions. Right. As we know, of course, restricting asylum cases. You mentioned refugees. This is something that we need to keep in mind, too. I mean, what are refugees going through? He's also pushed already for further tax cuts as the economy withers um, and employed vast emergency powers under the under the guise of fighting coronavirus. God knows what he's actually doing, what he can do based on the measures that have already been taken. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, and what I was what I was getting at was like the logistical capacity of like food and water distribution, medical, all yeah. those things that the National Guard will be doing. But I think to get us through the crisis, as we talked about this. The projections are we're going up in cases. It's going to continue to rapidly grow. Uh, everything is going to going to ramp up. You know, we we haven't seen the worst of it yet. It's going to get a lot more intense. Uh, estimates are that that peak is going to be in 45 days. So things are going to ramp up. 45 days from now is when there's going to be like the massive maximum number of infected people at one time, and then it's going to ramp down as people recover and infections are less and stuff like that. Um, so I think that the danger and what you're talking about, these measures being all of the ice shit is all disgusting. The refugees, that's all disgusting. Everyone should be taken care of in the same way. But in terms of the use of the National Guard and all these measures that are being put forward, the real danger is as when is that going to end? Once you put in these yeah, emergency right. measures, once you declare all these different things, when, when once we're through this, you know, whatever window it's going to take to get through this as a society, how many of those things are going to stay at the books? Just like 9-11, right? How many things were put on the books meant as just, oh, this is just during the crisis that we still have on the books today and it is still used uh, to a great, great deal uh, today. Um, thanks, Niall and Justine. What's up, y'all? Oh, um, hey. We're going to get to the 2020 election stuff yep, very soon, but um, are we ready to wrap up the COVID? Yeah, stuff? I mean, I think that the last thing that I wanted to say about it was, as you mentioned before we started, Mike, kind of this is not just a health crisis. This is an economic crisis and the need for the things that Bernie has been proposing, emergency payouts for every household family, immediate rent and mortgage freezes. We mentioned that numerous friends have already lost their jobs. This is going to get worse. There's millions of people in the hospitality industry who've already lost work. They do not have health care. They don't have insurance. Even if they did before, they don't have it now since they've lost their jobs. You mentioned 30% unemployment possibly being reached. This whole thing just shows that we can give people what they need. We have the money, we have the capacity. Are we going to do it? Are we going to step up to the plate and bail out people? I mean, 
it's a really, really scary time. And I think that this is a new age and a new era and, and a new awakening that hopefully we kind of see the world differently and see what we actually need to prioritize differently because it's an emergency situation, as I mentioned. I mean, it, it's going to be a collective effort and we need to start thinking collectively. So I don't know if you had anything to wrap up before we get into the election. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, everyone if is on quarantine. Uh, if you're not, you should be. Um, if you're being forced to go to work still, um, you know, of course, take those precautions. But either way, even if you're having to go to work during the day, everyone is at home quite a bit. Um, and we're kind of in that phase, as I mentioned earlier, uh, preparing ourselves psychologically to go through the difficulties that we're going to be facing. It's just going to get worse from here for a period of time. Things will get better at some point, but it's going to be a trial for everyone uh, to get through. Um, and so we're in it together. And I think that there's so many things. If we if we start thinking now about what we should be doing that are the healthy habits, the healthy things to get ourselves through this crisis in terms of just our own prepping and things you need to do to prepare. But, you know, it's uh, we have to look at it in that way. We're about to go through something big together um, and we have to start put getting in mind what we're going to be doing uh, to get through it. Uh, I think that I just wanted to say that there's there's lots of things that we can be doing um, at home to where we're not just locked in the negativity of of scrolling social media constantly and things like that. It's, it's now is the time to start implementing the healthy habits that are going to help you get through this. And the reason for that is, you know, um, like stress is a is a natural thing. Stress is actually an adaptive trait for humans, right? Stress helps you survive, right? So when you get up in the morning, you're stressed out about stuff that actually motivates you to get up and do it. Uh, and like early humanity, you know, the stress of like getting killed by like a dangerous creature that's there, like that, that stress is what actually prevents you, um, from dying and actually helps you survive. And so the stress that you're feeling now about COVID-19, that's actually what's motivating you to take the precautions that are necessary to prevent yourself from getting it and spreading it to others. So the stress that you're feeling is a good thing. It's a survival mechanism. It's that adaptive, natural human trait. And so we have to look at it in that context. You have to embrace it in some ways. Um, but the thing is, is that adaptive trait, those stress hormones that our body produces to make us really want to survive, it's, it doesn't come free. It costs something for our bodies. And so all of these diseases like hypertension, high blood pressure, heart disease that come from workers who are stressed out constantly on a daily basis, it's because the constant production of stress hormones is hard on your body. And so as we're stressed out, in the COVID situation, we have to recognize that we have to embrace it in a way, but we also have to give yourselves breaks from it. And mm -hmm. your body needs time to recharge. And if you're just going to be constantly in a stress mode, uh, it's going to wear on your body physically as well as emotionally. And so there's so many things like just, you know, mindfulness, getting out, not thinking about anything. If you can, there's so many techniques you can, you can find to be able to do that, but you have to be making time throughout the day to do the positive things that are going to give be breaks from that going on walks, um, turning off social media, engaging with things that are productive, um, you know, like using spare time to learn new things. Like I feel like I know so much from the school of YouTube, learning editing and graphics <laughs> and so much just from looking at tutorials. So there's try to share with each and also just connecting with, with your friends and family. I mean, calling people, FaceTiming people, uh, making sure every day you're doing that kind of thing so that you're um, staying in a kind of healthy state to, to prepare for what's coming. Absolutely. We don't need to instinctually think that we need to hoard or be antisocial or take up arms. Uh, <laughs> we need to do the opposite. We need to think communally 
uh, locally, we need to see if there's anyone link up with mutual aid networks, right? Um, it's Going Down has a list of great solidarity efforts that are going on if you are alone, if you know people who are alone. Uh, I know a lot of people don't have that lifeline to friends and family that they can get things. Uh, there is no supply chain. And so link up with those organizations, help those efforts if you can to keep that community going and thriving because a lot of people are isolated. You know, this is an isolating society. Capitalism's isolating. And I think a lot of people feel like they are completely helpless. And it's time for us to step up to the plate and, and be that source for a lot of people, that source of happiness, of optimism, of hope, of hope that we will be entering a, a new dawn, right? A, a new age where there is no looking back at the old world. I mean, we really are in a new era and there is no turning back. It, that's the only thing that I could really be hopeful about. Um, it is such a kind of devastating before and after and going back to the uniquely comforting notion that the entire world is going through this crisis together. And we can look to disasters like Katrina and like Hurricane Harvey, which we covered in Empire Files. I mean, even though the government was completely uh, did a horrible job and neglected these poor communities on the front lines of these disasters, community efforts sprung up naturally and organically and people helped each other survive and helped each other get those lifelines and supply chains and did what they had to do. And those are the beautiful, heroic stories that we never hear um, on purpose. So keep that in mind. This should be a radicalizing moment for people. Hopefully we see labor struggles emerge out of this. Hopefully we see measures like Bernie has been proposing this whole time in terms of emergency healthcare, sick leave, et cetera. Hopefully we see that manifest in ways that we never have before because it's so needed and urgent, right? It's not this ethereal notion. It's something that's really, really tangible and real and people are dying and people are going to be uh, straddled with debt in an unprecedented level in the healthcare industry if we don't act now and demand uh, these core things that we know we all need. So keep that in mind, as Mike said, invest your time and energy into reading, into art, I'm making a couple art pieces right now. It feels really good, actually. I've been playing with my cats a lot more. Um, so yeah, it's just really cool. And, and I think I'm really lucky to be quarantined with someone that I love and have a really good time hanging out with. But um, but please reach out to friends and family because this is the time yeah. that you need, you need community the most. Mike, let's get into the election um, really quickly of what Trump, I'm sorry, what Biden and Bernie are doing to address these things. You've been following it a little bit more closely than me, but it is, it's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's amazing that this comes at a time when the election is happening, when we have a candidate like Bernie and a candidate like Biden. Meanwhile, Trump's running the show. It's just so surreal to me that this is happening. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about that. So, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned earlier that Biden, by being absent, hiding, where is he? Does he have COVID-19? Like, what is going on? Um, he's letting Trump control the conversation. And Trump, just by being the guy that's being seen as the president, uh, his approval rate is going up. But what he's saying is it's absolutely off the wall shit. Like, when Trump does these <laughs> press conferences, like, they are really something else. Like, what is going on there? That's an example. You know, I think when Biden talks and, you know, the one little clip he did, like, Tuesday was the last time he was seen in public doing a broadcast. He just is like, for, you know, Biden is is almost like not even a, 
of his own person anymore. He's just completely puppeted by elites of the Democratic Party and and institutions of power like Big Pharma and just doesn't know what to. He's like obviously in a state of serious uh, mental degradation. But I don't think Trump is in a state of mental degradation. What you're seeing from Trump is just someone who does not give a fuck about you or the crisis at all. That's like that when you see Trump do these press conferences, that's just the mind of a total sociopath who has zero ounce of compassion or care for anyone in the world. So even the things that he's doing, the measures that are coming, those are things that are just put on his desk. This will make you look good. Okay, I'll do this. It'll make me look good. Like, so truly what you're seeing from Trump is just someone who gives no shit at all about you, about anyone. Um, and that's that's quite clear. Uh, Biden being absent is, uh, is just unbelievable. I mean, to <laughs> not be on the national stage, if you want to say that you are the nominee, the election's over which very much the Democratic Party wants to say. In fact, the DNC and Biden specifically telling people to go vote uh, last, you know, whatever Tuesday it was, like people are going to die from that, especially in Florida, where majority people were older who went and voted. Biden specifically told them it is safe to go vote. The CDC said it was safe to vote, which wasn't true. Um, The DNC refusing to postpone these elections or make them mail-in only, like that's going to kill people. but, um, But then disappearing, Right after that, but after Mike, Biden, he doesn't know how to do telecom conferences. Right. He doesn't know how to do press conferences from his home. Yeah, well, actually, can't. what was the excuse? The actual official campaign person said why we haven't seen him since Tuesday. Because he said that he doesn't know how to figure out the technology of like. Yeah, live Biden streaming. himself has to like live stream from his laptop. Yeah, doesn't he have a huge apparatus behind him? And also, like the lighting is difficult because his mansion has high ceilings, and so he can't figure out how to light right. the shot. I'm sorry, does Biden have COVID? Is he like deathly ill right now and hiding, or what is going on? I this I think this is a it's possible that he's sick with COVID nineteen. <laughs> it's just the um, weirdest. I think the more likely scenario is that they just don't care. Right. Um. They are ready to be like ordained the nominee. They've stopped running in the election. They just don't give it. They're like, oh, well, I'm I'm the nominee now, which is untrue, which we're gonna get into, and they just don't care enough. I mean, they they just don't give a shit enough. Um. And I think that's just really. The explanation for why we haven't seen Biden. Biden's incapable on his own of saying, I got to get out there. I got to give leadership. I got to try to steer the country through this crisis. I got to be a resource for people. He himself doesn't have the capacity to do that. But the fact that his team doesn't say, oh, we got to get him out there. They're all planning their next step in their political career. They're all planning who's going to get one position in Biden's cabinet or who's going to get promoted to what thing for the Biden presidential campaign from the Biden primary campaign. They're all focused on the next steps for them. Uh, personally in their careers like obviously otherwise they would be out there pushing biden to try to do some of this shit so it's a it's a disgusting grouping all around yeah i mean he's Um, been running a shadow campaign this whole time so i guess it's not surprising that he's absent during the biggest national i mean the official time right the official policy of the biden campaign was to not let him be in front of a camera to not let him do interviews (laughs) to have people do interviews on his behalf so yeah and here's, here's what he's doing meanwhile that he's nowhere to be found like on media whatsoever you have bernie sanders doing like these daily press conferences like taking it very seriously telling people you know this is my platform this is what i've been urging for this whole time extraordinary measures call for an extraordinary response um joe biden's campaign meanwhile is sending out bizarre fundraising emails with subject lines like these my stutter that's the that's the fundraising email During- sent out my stutter and in the midst of this nightmare he's literally asking for money because he overcame a stutter by the way, people justify his clear cognitive decline by saying, oh, it's just a stutter. No, he has dementia. It's very obvious and it's cruel. 
Um, and the fact that you're just like excusing this by being like, oh, you don't know what a stutter is. No, I, I think that we know the difference between a stutter and someone who literally like is losing their shit. And that's Joe Biden. So look, the election is not over and we're going to get into Tulsi and, and know, Warren dropping out. Trump and, Trump just put out some, they're all, the Trump administration is seizing on the fact that Biden's nowhere to be seen. Yeah, no, Trump, Trump and all these people, it. they're promoting the hell out of that yeah. Biden's absence. They're like, where's Biden? He's not here yeah, during yeah, a national yeah. crisis. Trump is leading the way. I mean, just as, as we predicted it. Yeah, of course. Look, the election is not over. Half the country has not voted. We're in the midst of a crazy global crisis to the likes of that we've never seen in the history of this world. I mean, frankly, Bernie should not and cannot drop out right now. He is the only one who's who's reminding people that his policy platform is exactly what needs to happen and be implemented urgently now. Um, the stakes couldn't be higher. Half the country has not voted yet. I just said that. But I mean, we should not be calling for Bernie to leave the race. We should not um, be just assuming that Biden is the nominee. A lot can happen. Look at how quickly things turned around when Biden won South right. Carolina. Things could change in the drop of a hat. Yep. No, absolutely. I mean, that's as you mentioned, 26 states have not voted yet. Um, we The election very much could go through a major postponement. Um, what needs to happen is they just need to switch to all paper ballots. Right. You know, all of these problems we saw, the Democratic primary, of voting machines and all this weird shit, um, you know, exit polls not matching up or whatever, like paper ballots, mail-in ballots are the number one best way to vote anyway. In the interest of public safety, you could, the DNC could easily just transfer everything to all mail-in ballots, have people in the party go around, collect them, things like that. It would, wouldn't be very hard at all. Either way, either we're, they they want to push it and get it over with. Like the reason that they wanted people to vote last Tuesday, they wanted they want people to go vote so they can say, oh, Biden's a nominee, whatever. Um, but that we're not in that situation. I think that the fact that Bernie's been showing great leadership through the crisis, that his policies are being validated, that even Biden's people said we should start to implement mm -hmm. some of Bernie's things to deal with this crisis. I mean, I, I think that there's a, a real potential that things could turn around. I mean, and especially if people rally behind Bernie right now, if everyone who has a stake in this rallies behind them, um, if there's a kind of big public push for what he's calling for as a response to it, because Bernie's not campaigning right now. He's not going out and doing these live streams and all this stuff and saying, this is why we need to vote for me uh, in the Democratic primary. He's not saying that at all. He's just trying to give guy do what he can in the Senate. He's using, I mean, the things that Bernie's doing is pretty impressive. He's using his burn app just to connect people with each other to check in on each other. He's fundraising, not for his campaign, but for five different charities. Every donation is split between five different charities. Mm -hmm. He's using the networks that he's built to do the kind of relief that we're talking about as needed and is leading the fight in the Senate to push the Republicans and the Democrats to adopt kind of really radical things. He's leading the conversation um, and with a working class program uh, for dealing with the crisis. And so uh, it's by, you know, there's no way that the primary is over under these circumstances, especially, you know, uh, you know Biden could get sick. One of them could could get sick. I mean, it's, right. Bernie's just as, as susceptible to it. Right. Um, but that's another thing. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. This politicians already have it. Biden, someone who actually obviously wasn't very safe about the virus, if you thought it was no big deal. And, you know, we know what a touchy guy he is. Um, you know, <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen. So I feel right. like the, right. the idea that Biden is the nominee is absolutely not the case. He's not the presumptive nominee. Presumptive nominee means all the fucking states have voted that needs he has an insurmountable delegate lead. He doesn't have that right now. Um, things could very easily turn around and we need to recognize that it's not over. And 
the crisis is just another example of that. And it's going to make people in this country look to see who they want to be leading, uh, leading them through something like this. Yeah. I mean, I look, if this pandemic wasn't going on, I, I did have a lot to say just about Bernie. And I was disappointed with his inability to really go after the jugular of Joe Biden. He kept saying Biden's my friend and, and it was really annoying. Right. And I felt like he should have done way more given that this health crisis has erupted and Bernie's platform is primarily pushing the Medicare for all and these emergency measures to provide a health infrastructure and social safety net for people, I find this extremely important, right? And it is very urgent to talk about what he is doing. He actually has essentially just become president. I mean, he's like yeah. stepped up to a leadership position uh, without being designated. I mean, he, he's just done it and he's utilized his massive fundraising apparatus and his huge campaign base to just do these things. And I think it's really great. And, and, and he's the only one really doing it in government. So kudos to him. Um, you know, we can talk about whatever happened during the campaign later with whatever happens next. But right now, I think it's important to talk about the disunity between progressives, because as we're t between progressives, right, that's in air quotes for sure. But as we're talking about, you know, the establishment machine and Joe Biden being puppeted and ghosted by like this giant apparatus behind him that has propelled him to really get this far. All of the disunity between the so-called anti-establishment candidates, right? Warren, Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard. Meanwhile, you have all of the establishment candidates lining up to back Joe Biden right before Super Tuesday, and it just did absolute wonders for the election. And we all know what happened next. But I think it's really fascinating to analyze um, who Elizabeth Warren, who Andrew Yang and who Tulsi Gabbard showed themselves to be. I mean, right. what's that quote when someone shows you who they are, believe it the first time? Like, I know I bit butchered that, but that's exactly what we saw with all of these people. So do you want to talk about what we learned about Warren and, and the Super PAC? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting because, uh, you know, when Warren decided to endorse nobody, um, you know, which is essentially endorsing Biden and then giving this excuse to the media about the um, the meanness of Bernie bros, which is a fake story. And I think that was one of in hindsight, it'll be seen as one of the things that was able to derail the Bernie campaign is that the conversation, instead of being whether or not Medicare for all should happen, whether or not forgiving all student debt should happen, all that stuff. It was all about Bernie bros and online harassment, which was which was fake um, that as, a, as a campaign thing. So Warren and endorsing nobody, but this I, this thing of her super PAC. I wouldn't say that's endorsing Biden because that you could right. go far worse and actually endorse Biden. That's true. Her, Warren <laughs> removing endorse herself. nobody. Right, so right. So that, that actually, right. It was the Warren's whole thing from the beginning is Warren and Bernie are a team. They are the progressives. Whichever one is losing should drop out and endorse the other one. So that was always expected of Warren. So for mm -hmm. Warren to drop out and endorse no one, it was like, wait, I thought we were all in this progressive alliance together. So all of those journalists, everyone who was this whole time saying, you can't criticize Warren. She's going to back Bernie if, if, if uh, she's not winning, she never intended to to begin with. And so the fact that she came up with this excuse of, oh, some people on Twitter posted an emoji, like that's not real. She never intended on dropping on endorsing Bernie. She intended on beating Bernie, uh, having a, based on saying, I'm just like Bernie and I want to help Bernie and stuff like that. It was all a grift. It was all fake. And we know that by who she was before uh, this election, during and, and um, you know, and now after. Um, but this idea of the super PAC where she only, her campaign was done. Um, she was not in anymore. Uh, she was losing she money. She was losing. She was hemorrhaging money. Uh, they were laying off people. They couldn't afford any ads in all of the Super Tuesday states. 
it was done. Uh, she had she didn't show in diverse states. She didn't show in not diverse states. It was like she was doing so bad. Uh, she was going to drop out. The one thing that kept her in the race, that kept her campaign afloat, that kept ads out there was this super PAC, persist PAC after Warren had campaigned on leading the way to have no super PACs. Um, and then when it was like, well, you have a super PAC now, what's going on? She said, I'll lead the way when everyone else does it, which is like, I'll be the first to do it once everyone else does it, which is like a contradiction. You'll be the first to get rid of super PACs once everyone else gets rid of super PACs, which means you will be the last to get rid of super PACs. Um, <laughs> But then everyone's like, well, what is this super PAC? Because Warren was pretending, you know, Sunrise Movement and, uh, you know, uh, Dream Defenders were super PACs, which they're not. And everyone wanted to know what this super PAC was. And so everyone had all these theories. Warren's super PAC is like oil people and whatever. Um, but this is what kept her in the race was uh, and kept her competitive in the race in terms of being able to have ad buys and staff and so forth. It was one person. The super PAC was funded, uh, you know, 99% by one billionaire, uh, by the billionaire's tears, maybe. Um, but, the, you know, on Warren's coffee cup and T-shirts and stuff. It was funded by one person. Um, do you know who that person is? Some guy What's, who funded Joe Arpaio, it's a woman. right? It's some oh, tech okay. woman. Okay. Some tech billionaire. So I didn't know if you had no, it. No, I don't have it written down. Yeah, and so this, uh, so this one person, single-handedly, kept Warren in the race through Super Tuesday. Um, you know, instead of Warren dropping out, endorsing Bernie, or just dropping out of the election altogether, who knows what impact that would have had on Super Tuesday. But there's all these like articles about this woman, this tech billionaire woman, um, about how she's like a progressive, she funds women's uh, stuff and whatever. Turns out that she maxed out as a donor to Joe Arpaio in 2018. Um, so that's not mentioned in any of these articles about what a great person she is. But I did want to say how significant that is. Warren is someone who says that uh, a person has to apologize for who their supporters are, I'm demanding that of Bernie. Uh, is Warren going to apologize for taking money from someone, not just who's a tech billionaire, but who also gave massive amounts of money to probably the worst uh, Nazi in America? Um, you know, I went to Arizona in 2010, 2011, when SB 1070 was happening, when Jar Pio was terrorizing immigrants, torturing immigrants. Um, so I've seen firsthand the pink handcuffs that Arpaio used on people, the pink underwear. You know, Joe Arpaio as a sheriff in Arizona um, deputized hundreds of these racist vigilantes, these crazy people that shoot immigrants crossing the border that like set up ambushes for immigrant families so they could shoot them in the middle of the desert. Arpaio actually deputized all of these people as like a vigilante militia, had them go on a reign of terror against immigrants um, in, in the state. Uh, and then when he'd, he'd capture immigrants crossing the border, he would strip them down to just being like pink. He'd got pink handcuffs made and pink underwear, like diapers made, and then would parade immigrants like shirtless in these pin, pink underwear and pink handcuffs through the streets of Arizona with like crazy racists, like coming to watch them uh, be sent to jail. I mean, it's like Nazi shit. It's like really obscene. Uh, and then his jails were notorious. You know, Arpaio's jails had the most number of suicides in the entire country, of any jail in the entire country. And their jails are significantly smaller. Half of those deaths are unsolved. So they're supposed to be suicides, but they're most likely murders uh, by Arpaio's like thugs who works in the jail. He set up these tent cities in the desert uh, to house all of these immigrants that he was detaining. And the temperature 
in these tents got up to 145 degrees, meaning it melted the shoes of the immigrants in detention who are in these tent facilities. And then when it became cold in the winter, he wouldn't allow as a prison policy to have any uh, winter or warm weather gear. So everyone would be freezing um, in the middle of the winter. So this guy was sadistic. He intent and also was, you know, this, this bill tech billionaire who funded Warren as like a woman's champion. Arpaio in Arpaio's jails was letting like the prison guards like videotape women in the female jails, like while they're going to the bathroom and stuff and do who knows what uh, with the tape. So this is like, and then Joe was, uh, Arpaio was investigated for all this shit. He uh, was an outlaw. He refused to cooperate. And then he went to jail for contempt, for refusing to cooperate with, uh, with the feds who were investigating him for horrible shit. And then Trump pardoned him. I yep. mean, he was in prison yep. before that he ran for Senate in 2018. And so after all, this was like a huge national scandal. People were calling on him to be tried for human rights crimes. Like he is one of the, he is arguably the worst politician or person who's had any political power in America in my lifetime. It's absolutely absurd. The fact that the person that maxed out as a donor to him for a Senate run in 2018 after he got out of jail uh, is the one that kept Warren in the race through Super Tuesday, um, it just says everything right there. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a hidden agenda to not necessarily promote Warren's policies, right. but just to sabotage Bernie further, since this guy was like, or this woman was clearly some like crazy right winger. So I, just I see what's up, on your computer screen. <laughs> I, I just thought of this as just a funny addition to what you're saying. I mean, it's a horrifying, it's horrifying to remember the legacy of Joe Arpaio and the fact that Trump pardoned this monster, but also Malcolm in the middle. Um, Frankie Muniz, Malcolm from Malcolm in the Middle, is actually a fan of Joe Arpaio. <laughs> he has photos with him. You have Chef, Sheriff Joe Arpaio posting on Twitter, meeting with Malcolm in the Middle TV star Frankie Muniz. He's a fan of mine, and now I'm a fan of his. May join my posse, his posse of detaining immigrants, shaming them, making them wear pink underwear and pink handcuffs and melting their shoes. Great job, Frankie Muniz. You are a psycho. So Very yeah, sad just thought for of such that. a, Very such sad. a working class show. Malcolm Super sad. I know, I really like that show, but it's really sad to know that he's a crazy right winger. Talk, so, talk about uh, Andrew Yang, Abby. What happened there? I mean, there? look, Andrew Yang, <laughs> I never really bought it, right? I never really bought Warren, Yang, and, and Gabbard. Um, and I got really, you know, raked over the coals for it. And I don't regret it because I'm a journalist and I'm supposed to criticize people. And um, especially when you're running for president, Right. When you're running for president, I encourage criticism. I encourage people to highlight the inconsistencies in your record. Andrew Yang, um, I really like UBI, of course, but not at the expense of all other social services, right? And there was a lot of problems with his platform. So I wasn't too surprised that he dropped out um, and endorsed Biden. I First saw one him. CNN. Yeah, I saw him get a, a, a job at CNN. He just kind of turned way more generic um, than he was on the campaign trail. And I, and I liked him. I liked what he had to say on the campaign trail. I liked a lot of the stuff he brought up at the debates. Um, I thought he was really smart. But as soon as I saw him get the job at CNN, I was just like, okay, he's just kind of like bent the knee because he's not bringing anything new to the table. He's, he's joined as an anchor. He's a paid contributor. And he's just kind of going along with the herd and not really pointing out anything that would be noteworthy whatsoever. So, yeah then turned around and endorsed Joe Biden. Uh, really shocking, right? Is Joe Biden going to put forward a UBI? Is Joe Biden anyone who's talking about any of the things that Andrew Yang was talking about? And he was endorsing him as it was like 
Oh was yeah, like, no, Biden, was, Bernie. Yeah. It was like, who's it going to yep. be? And Yang's like, Biden should be yep. should beat Bernie. It wasn't like, oh, Biden's the eventual nominee. It was like, oh, they're in a tough contest. I'm going to throw my weight, tell my supporters to vote for Biden. Yeah. So, it just but says everything about who you are. It really says everything about who you are, and it really, I think, exposes Tulsi Gabbard as well. This is someone who we've been pretty frank about. Uh, again. Uh, a lot of people have been very, very angry, taking out a lot of vitriol, um, which I never really understood because, look, even though we were supporting Bernie Sanders, he was a compromised candidate for us. We understand the limitations and we understand very clearly his foreign policy inconsistencies and and stark record. We understood also that there was a mass movement behind him and that tangible policies would be set into place immediately if he did win that would help alleviate suffering for tens of millions of people nationwide. And we felt like that was something worth fighting for and worth galvanizing for. Um, but that's not to say that we didn't criticize Bernie Sanders every time he would fuck up, right? Venezuela, really fucked up there. Um, I was the first one to call him out over and over and over again there. I didn't think he went far enough on Palestine, even though he went further than everyone else. I called him out consistently there. It, it, it didn't matter though. It didn't matter what you said about Bernie, um, you were relentlessly attacked if you criticized Tulsi in remotely the same way or just called out her foreign policy record, right? Called out the fact that she was supporting torture just a couple of years ago after we knew the extent of the torture campaign, um, calling out the fact that she wanted to be a, a hawk in the war on terror, that she wanted to you know, do all these kind of draconian measures in terms of bombing terrorists, um, stuff like that. So, and also just the fact that she was openly serving in the military, but meanwhile, quote unquote, against regime change wars. So I just found it a little bit odd. I mean, I never really trusted her. I just never really felt like she was a genuine person that I, that resonated with me. None of her rhetoric re really resonated with me. I understood a lot of people really appreciated her bringing that foreign policy platform to the table. But if you're going to go with the whole anti-imperialist mantra and anti-empire mantra, go as far as like Ron Paul did. I mean, at least say, let's let's end all the bases. Let's shut down every war, you know, and, and she wasn't doing that at all. So I never really understood like why people were so obsessed with her and saying she's amazing on foreign policy. She's exactly in line with you and Mike. How could you not like her? And of course she wasn't. I mean, she didn't go nearly as far um, as anything that I would have liked to see. And not to give Bernie Sanders an excuse, but Bernie Sanders wasn't running on an anti-imperialist, and not to say that Tulsi Gabbard was, was either. She was never anti-imperialist. That means something very specific. She was even confronted, are you anti-imperialist? And she said, no, I'm like pro-America or something. But Bernie Sanders wasn't running on a foreign policy platform. And that's, that's the core difference here. So anyway... We got a lot of heat, right? We lost a lot of fans who were very upset that we dared to criticize a presidential candidate. Um, and I think that was really strange that you can't criticize someone who's running for president. I encourage criticism of Bernie Sanders. I encourage criticism of all these people. And I think that's really important to not have any sacred cows. And I think you really need to ask yourself why. Why do you have such an emotional allegiance and an emotional response to someone that is a politician, that is a seasoned politician, and to a complete stranger to you. I'm not talking about the people who are actually friends with her and like media surrogates for her. That's a whole different problem. Um, and I understand maybe why they didn't want to criticize her because they were, they were like li literally friends with her. But there were so many people that were sycophantically defending her um, and they didn't know her. You don't know these people. These people are politicians. They will disappoint you, right? And she did. 
right? She did disappoint everyone. And I think that um, I feel bad. I feel bad for a lot of her supporters because she gave a full-throated endorsement of Joe Biden. Full-throated. Um, you know, she she put out a video kind of out of the blue after she said she was going to take this all the way to the nomination. And she said Joe Biden has a really good heart. She's friends with his family. She's friends with Bo Biden. I was confused. I don't even, I didn't even know that she knew Bo Biden. He was a soldier. She, he was a soldier. Um, she said this. Um, let me just read this little quote. She said, I knew Vice, I know Vice President Biden and his wife. I'm grateful to have called his son Bo a friend who also served in the National Guard. Although I may not agree with the Vice President on every issue, I know he has a good heart. How do you know that? Um, and he's motivated by love for his country and the American people. I'm confident that he will lead our country guided by the spirit of aloha, respect and compassion, and thus heal a divisiveness that has been tearing our country apart. Um, I mean, look, there's several things that I feel like should be said about this. I think the most obvious thing is just how antithetical it is to endorse wholeheartedly someone who is one of the leading architects of regime change wars. This is a man who has been lying about his support for the Iraq war, among many other things, right? But who has been behind almost every foreign policy disaster and criminal endeavor his entire career. He's the most conservative member of, quote unquote, the Democratic Party self-proclaimed in Congress or in the, in the Senate. Um, he even told the Bush administration, you see him in these photos, actually, when we're resurrecting, talking about the, the anniversary of shock and awe and the invasion of Iraq, you see Biden next to Bush. Like they were like working together. Biden was, was leading the effort. He was one of the architects of the Iraq war, the war that Tulsi Gabbard served in. Um, he also offered a Nobel Peace Prize to George W. Bush and, and, uh, and said that he would support his reelection campaign. For invading Iraq for invading Iraq. So I think that the excuses that came out, I mean, it, I look, people were twisting themselves in knots to try, try to excuse this and, and explain away her actions. And I think that all you need to do is hear from her own words and hear from herself uh, on the follow-up interview on Jimmy Dore show, where she kind of confirms our worst fears that, that she's just a seasoned politician who thinks the military is a great thing and, and really just thinks Joe Biden is the one. And it was kind of sad to see a lot of surrogates kind of jumping to her defense saying that she, you know, A, she needed to serve in the National Guard, which is heroic. Um, B, that she got snubbed by Bernie Sanders and that she wanted to endorse Bernie, but she couldn't. And also like, how dare she endorse Bernie if he snubbed her this whole time? Like this miraculous kind of cartoonish notion that sh they should have teamed up together when they were competing in a primary. They were competitors in a primary. And what, Biden ignored her too. Biden completely ignored her. So anyway, Mike, I'm sorry that I just droned on and on and on. It's just it's just so bizarre to me that this happened because A, Biden is not the nominee. Yes, I understand. We all have known this whole time, disappointingly so, just like Bernie endorsed Hillary um, to the heartbreak of many. When she was the presumptive nominee. When she was the presumptive She's not nominee even a presumptive at nominee. the convention, right? I, I'll never forget it. We were in Philly. It was horrible. It was a horrible moment. We all knew that was going to happen again. What we didn't know was that we were going to get blindsided by Tulsi Gabbard dropping out well after her time, right? She should have dropped out after New Hampshire, which is she threw all her eggs in the basket of New Hampshire. She waited until now to drop out at the time of a national pandemic where Bernie's health care plans could 
you know, pushing these plans forward and, and tying yourself to Medicare for all and all these emergency measures. She chose to not do that at all. And she said, I know that Biden will be the nominee. Therefore, we should get behind him. And it's like, but there's someone else in the race still, someone that you, I thought, were way more ideologically aligned with, not to mention the foreign policy stuff. So, And she did not get activated by the Hawaii National Guard. Yeah, and she didn't get activated by the Hawaii National Guard. She confirmed no that on Jimmy Dore's show. So that's... That's where I'm at on it. I, I I was really disappointed and frankly shocked um, and also just felt really bad because I think it just says once again that none of these people care about you and all of these people will say whatever they need to to grift. Yeah. Um, you know, I do want to extend an, an olive branch in some ways to Tulsi supporters who um, didn't like that we uh, said to be skeptical of her criticized inconsistencies in certain foreign policy things. But I think that, like you were saying, Abby, like so many people were convinced that she had this amazing foreign policy, that she was anti-establishment, even though she promised to support whoever the nominee was. Like you said, we didn't, she didn't promise to endorse Biden when Bernie and Biden are, are uh, you know, in a, in a tense battle. Um, and to give such a full-throated endorsement, uh, like you read. Um, I mean, this happened because she intentionally created this image and brand of herself. You know, she reached out to alternative media people who are so normally ignored uh, by mainstream politicians. Um, she said just enough to let people run with the idea that she was just this massively strong anti-war candidate. She said she said just enough. And when she would be asked certain questions um, that tried to call, decide whether she was really an anti-imperialist or whatever, she would answer the question she wanted to answer and steer it towards a regime change, America first, whatever. But she never fully answered these questions. Um, and so she said just enough to lead on people that she intentionally sought as the base of her campaign. People from the Bernie movement who cared a lot about foreign policy. Um, I And I and I feel bad, uh, as you do, Abby. I think that th before we had to do a lot of speculating, before the argument was, what is Tulsi? Well, she's done this in the past in foreign policy. How come all of a sudden she's saying this now? And there's a lot of speculation that people would say, oh, she's going to do this. She's like, and there's all just based on speculation, right? Now we know uh, the interview she did yesterday, I believe, with Jimmy Dore, it's 30 minutes. Everyone should watch it. Um, we don't, there's no more question about who she is politically, where she stands on foreign policy why she endorsed Biden. If she, there's another defense, like she didn't really endorse him. She's just supporting <laughs> him. She confirms that interview, no support means endorse. Um, it's all very clear there. And I think I was very sad watching it because in that entire 30 minutes, and even at the end, and I'll talk about some of the things she says in it, but even at the end, Jimmy says, okay, is there anything, your campaign's done? This is a, you're no longer a candidate? Is there anything else you want to say? Um, she said some stuff about COVID-19, but what she did not do is she did not say thank you to her supporters who are fans of Jimmy. Um, you know, Jimmy Dore did so much to make her campaign have life. And so many of the people, in fact, I feel like the entire backbone of her campaign, um, all of the ground troops, the people that did outreach for her, the people that hosted events for her and went to the events for her, the people that defended her on, like the whole, like the, the whole grassroots of Tulsi Gabbard was so much linked 
to Jimmy and other alternative media, right? And so those were like, all of those supporters of hers came from that, came from him believing in her as a foreign policy candidate. And these people who were, you know, progressive people who cared very much about foreign policy were like, yes, this is our person. And then went out and, and fought for her. That was like her entire base in the Democratic primary. She didn't have a word of thanks for them. And in fact, I feel like in that interview, she is quite clearly repudiate them and saying goodbye to all of them. All of these questions that she used to give kind of different kinds of answers to, the question about um, you know, foreign policy and stuff, she said much more in this interview with Jimmy than she's ever said about her views on foreign policy, saying there are many wars, there are many places where US troops are right now in the world where we need to be there fighting wars. Not all wars are bad. Saying that joining the US military is a good thing and a heroic thing, and that people should join the military if they're thinking about joining the military. Things that if she was asked during the presidential primary, if Jimmy had asked her questions like this, she wouldn't have given these same answers. She would have given the answers that she gave in the past of trying to be around it, mislead people about who she is. In this interview, she was saying, in my view, quite clearly, uh, not thank you for your support, but, um, I had hoped that this base of people and this uh, type of language would have gotten me somewhere. It didn't. And now I'm going to move on to the next thing. And quite clearly, breaking with them, breaking uh, with that Tulsi movement. So I felt very, very bad for everyone that believed in her, who went to bat for her, who worked, campaigned for her and all that stuff. Because I feel that the consensus is they are very shocked by the things she had to say in this interview. Uh, and this was, this was intentional. Um, so, you know, I, I think that she... One of the things we said, not to belabor it, but one of the things we always said is we don't really know for her who she is. Mm -hmm. You know, she started her career in politics as a conservative, running for state legislature, you know, almost Republican. Um, then she kind of was a generic Democrat to become a congressperson, wasn't really outside the Democratic Party lines. Once she was in Congress and Obama was in, she had this like right wing opposition to Obama on foreign policy. Got to be harder on Iran. You got to support the insurgency in Ukraine. Uh, you got to use the, you know, use radical Islamic terror, be pro torture. So she was a critic from the right on foreign policy to Obama. Then Bernie popped off as a mass phenomenon and she's a burner. She's a progressive who wants Medicare for all and all this stuff. And then uh, 2019 comes around and she's uh, watered down some of the progressive stuff, but she's the best on foreign policy in this new phrase, anti-regime change war that no one had ever heard about before. What does this mean? What are you, how does this, how is any, any, you know, like, what does this mean for other wars? Like what is just, just regime change war? So then she branded as this. And then I feel that what Tulsi has done is calculated, well, this running as a Bernie light who's anti-regime change war, that didn't work for me either. Um, and so this interview with Jimmy, this end of her campaign, this endorsing Biden while Bernie is still fighting to be the nominee was saying, now I'm going to move on to the next phase. I'm going to move on to be the next person I think I need to be um, to get political power in this country. And I think if you watch that interview, that'll be quite clear to you as well. It made no sense. Yeah, it just made no sense to have to endorse Joe Biden. For what? Why? She could have pulled an Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I never thought that I would respect Elizabeth Warren more than Tulsi Gabbard in terms of bowing out of this race. It was pretty blindsiding, Mike. I mean, were you surprised when you saw that? Yeah. I mean, I thought she would have at least just endorsed nobody. I mean, I thought she would stay into the convention. Right. Um, it's really confusing why, she, you know, she's saying I'm doing it to save people's lives by being out of the race because I'm not telling them to go vote for me. You know, whatever, fine. Um, you know, if she was going to endorse Biden, why not? do it at the convention. Like it's, 
it's because the election's still going on and Bernie could still stage a comeback and win. And she wanted to make sure she's on record with the Democratic Party of lining up behind the establishment, lining up with Biden. The only reason she would do this is to send a signal to the Democratic Party. And it worked. She got all the alkalades from the near attendants, the party elites, all of the people that decide whether or not you can be, um, you know, a person who gets, uh, who can make it in the Democratic Party. She still wants to make it in the Democratic Party. And not only that, she wants to make it in the military. She's a field grade officer. She's a major. She doesn't just want to remain a major forever. She wants to be a lieutenant colonel. She wants to be a colonel. She wants to be a general. And to be able to make it in both the political establishment, which she has aspirations for, and the military establishment, falling in line behind the establishment, the broader establishment, is a necessity for those career goals. Um, and so she says she'll keep fighting for the things that she believes in. I don't, uh, I feel like that that changes on a regular basis. So who knows what she'll be fighting for next. Yeah, and I think that the difference between her and Bernie, obviously, um, you know, Bernie's still in the race, right? And this is a really radicalizing moment. This is an urgent moment to get behind the healthcare goals that his campaign is pushing forward. Um, but other than that obvious difference that he's still in the race and is still running against Joe Biden and why didn't she endorse the progressive in the race? Um, I think that if, you know, he were to drop out and ignore her and endorse Biden, it would be a different story. I think a lot of people would be rightly outraged and say, why aren't you endorsing the other more progressive person in the race who, you know, is against regime change wars? Why are you endorsing Joe Biden, who's kind of antithetical to what you want, who wants to veto Medicare for all? Other than all of these things, I think we were always set up to be disappointed by Bernie inevitably endorsing Joe Biden. We always knew that would happen. This happened in 2016 and it's going to happen again, right? If Joe Biden is the presumptive Democratic nominee, that is what's going to happen. I don't I didn't expect this. Right. And so that's the difference is that we didn't expect Tulsi to drop out before um, Joe Biden was the presumptive nominee and and full-throated endorse him. And she just kept lying was, and saying, well, Biden's the nominee. So I always said yeah. I endorse him. And so, so that I think that that's, that's the core difference here is like, I feel for you. Uh, I have been disappointed by Bernie many times. And I and again, we were set up for an inevitable disappointment if things went awry in the primary. I feel for Tulsi supporters. I understand your heart's in the right place. You really care about foreign policy. We care about foreign policy. Our show diligently covers and exposes the U.S. empire. It's time that we band together. We're all on the same side. We're all in this movement together. And I feel for you. This may be the first time that you've been disappointed by a political candidate, right? This may be the first time that you felt like you were lied to, that you had faith from someone within the establishment and that you were blindsided too. We're here for you. We want to build the movement with you and we can all do this together. Um, because elections, I think, are really limiting at the end of the day. Looking back at this election and, and every election of my lifetime, I've never really believed in electoral politics. It's all about the actions that you take day to day. And I think reprioritizing what we do, especially in times of crises like this, is really important. Again, this is a radicalizing moment and a moment of um, compassion and a moment of understanding and I understand emotions were high, people were outraged, rightly so, and it, it's hard times, trying times for us all. But I think that we're largely in this together, and I think that what we've taken away from the Andrew Yang, Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, um, and inevitably Bernie Sanders, God forbid, dropping out and endorsing Bern, um, Joe Biden, I think that that should show us the limitations of elections in general and the need to radicalize ourselves, unify ourselves, organize ourselves on a community level. 
And this is a day-to-day thing. This isn't about investing a vote every two to four years. This is about what we're doing every single day to build up these alternative structures and to challenge uh, the rot, the decaying rot of the U.S. empire and the establishment corruption that's entrenched, uh, that I think have really exposed that we cannot put progressives in office and, and have this kind of huge pipe dream of like, progressive takeover of Congress. I mean, it's it's a pipe dream. I think that largely um, we need to be building alternative structures here because even if Bernie did get in, right, best case scenario, Bernie gets in and then we have AOC, Rashida and Elon, look at what they're up against. I mean, it's still such a monumental task to put forward these measures. Even Bernie himself said that he would have to campaign around the country and like convince governors and mayors to do the things that the people want. Overwhelmingly, we know from polls that people want Medicare for all. But of course, you know, they, they don't understand the issue because of the corporate media, et cetera. But that's a huge task, right? It, it's not going to be easy. And I think that it's time to understand the limitations and and what we're really dealing with and what we're really up against. And instead of getting demoralized and going underground and becoming apolitical, become engaged, reach out to local community organizations, reach out to socialist alternatives. We have uh, candidates running the Party of Socialism for Liberation. If Bernie does not get the nomination that um, we're going to be rallying for, because we're not going to choose um, the lesser of two evils here. We're not going to choose a Joe Biden for president. I mean, there's no vote blue no matter who when we're talking about a Republican who is a proponent of regime change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just like what you're saying about the limitations of, you know, like best case scenario, Bernie wins, passes Medicare for all, passes, you know, all these great things. And then the next administration comes in and takes it away under capitalism even with great victories, victories of social democracy, workers' victories, they're always on the chopping block. All of the victories of the the Great Depression, all the labor victories, they're mostly all gone today. Because even if you win huge struggles under capitalism, they're always eroded from the moment that they're there, and it's a constant fight to protect them. I think if anything that this crisis shows with the the health crisis, with the coming economic crisis, we just have to get rid of capitalism altogether. Uh, imperial, we talk about imperialism a lot on, on this show. Uh, our, our show is based on the idea that we're an imperialist country. Imperialism is just a stage of capitalism, a stage of capitalist development that mandates and does this stuff all over the world. We need to overthrow capitalism altogether. And so I think that um, if you're demoralized by what happened on Super Tuesday, don't be because Bernie's showing he's still in the fight. He's still a leader. But I think if anything, it should move you to uh, trying to try to get involved in the anti-capitalist and socialist, revolutionary socialist organizations that exist or just in your own life, um, become that person. I mean, I think the last wrap up thing about Tulsi and Yang and Warren, I think that it's great that we had this discussion. And I think that what has happened has shown that now we can just never talk about them again. Uh, We should all move on from them. All the whole point of them being a part of the conversation was are there really a, what they who they really are, what they really stand for, what role they can play in the political struggle? They've all turned their backs on us, all three of them. And then we should just not give them the kind of attention that they have so much wanted throughout this campaign. So I'm done talking about all three of them from this point on. And I think you should, too, and focus your energies on things that are more productive. Um, if, as Abby said, if Bernie loses the nomination, um, which is not a given, um, or if and if Trump doesn't postpone the elections under some <laughs> draconian uh, you know dictatorship or whatever, I think the difference between 
Bernie, there is a difference if Bernie drops out and endorses Biden at the convention, or if Bernie loses and then endorses Biden at the convention. It's because the Bernie movement is still going to exist, and Bernie's mm -hmm. still going to exist as an organizer. So even if Biden wins, and even if Bernie helped Biden win, and then we're under a Biden administration, Bernie and the Bernie movement, and all the burners that work to get him elected, will still be fighting for Medicare for all, will still be mounting mobilizing efforts to get Bernie's bills passed, to put pressure on whether it's Trump or Biden uh, in, the, in the White House. For just like we would if Bernie was president, he's still going to be calling on those grassroots forces using the networks that he's created over the course of this campaign. So for, for burners who are worried that it's all over at the convention if Bernie doesn't win, it's not. I mean, he's going to stay fighting as long as he can, and then it's going to continue past him when he's no longer around because the networks and the movement that he's created is something that's that's not going to go away. And so whatever happens with the election, I encourage people to keep that in mind, that struggle is an ongoing thing and it's dynamic, and we're in a crisis now, things could uh, happen relatively quickly um, in terms of the development of a revolutionary crisis here in the United States. Um, but yeah, like Abby said, like you don't have to compromise your principles. Even though Bernie, if he doesn't win and endorses Biden, that doesn't mean you have to vote for Biden. We're not gonna vote for Biden. I'm voting, check out Gloria LaRiva and Leonard Peltier running an alternative socialist presidential campaign. Uh, but you don't, have to, you don't have to do that, and you shouldn't do that. I mean, I think it shows that it moves politics to the right, you know, you don't have to compromise and, you know. Yeah, and I just think that one thing that we should really take away from this entire election process is the tens of millions of young people who overwhelmingly voted for those policies, for the platform of radical change. And radical, it's actually sad to say, I mean, we're really bringing us back to where we were during the Great Depression, right? Which is putting in place a massive social safety net um, raising taxes on the wealthy. So it's it's kind of sad to even call that a gender radical, but here we are uh, begging for rights that Europeans have taken for granted for decades. But that's what young people have recognized and that's what they came out in droves and voted for. And I'm inspired by them and I'm gonna keep fighting for them. And so we can't go underground, we have to get involved, we have to keep in touch with all the burners and all the people who have been fighting on the front lines to get get this agenda passed in this country because this is exactly what we need. This is a great first step. And all of these people are energized and mobilized. And so we have to keep expanding on those efforts and those organizational capacities and all the people that we've met along the way um, because we're all in this together. And if there's nothing that's exposed that more, it's COVID-19. So stay safe, everyone. Thank you so much for being a part of this chat. Um, again, please check out Gaza Fights for Freedom. Check out our social media. We have a quarantine discount. Do you remember what it is off the top of your head that we could just give a shout out? Uh, for Gaza Fights for Freedom, it's lockdown. And for the t-shirts on empirefiles.store, it's solidarity. Right. Some, show some stuff. Yeah, check it out. We have empirefiles.store um, where we have a t-shirt that says sanctions kill. Um, also, U.S. wars are imperialist and stop the U.S. war machine. We're trying to get rid of our inventory uh, during this economic meltdown. So if you have the means, if you want to support alternative independent media that's challenging power, please donate to us. Please uh, show us some love. Buy Gaza Fights for Freedom. Check it out with your friends and family who you're quarantined with right now um, and kind of get a wider perspective. And, and thanks so much for joining the chat. Thank you so much for everything that you do to support us and other alternative media figures. We really appreciate it. Stay safe. We're thinking about you. Keep in touch and much love. And thanks everyone in the super chat, Marino and Marie. 
Campbell, Dan Campbell, Trish, all the others that donated during the chat uh, keeps us going. And hopefully we'll be doing more of these since we literally cannot go anywhere else. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs> we love you all. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to our Empire Files podcast. Help keep us independent and ad-free at patreon.com slash empirefiles. And be sure to catch our newest episodes by subscribing to our YouTube channel.